0: This time around, you are getting not one, but two world-class guests, as I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the show both Anne Watson and Chris Bolton. But just before that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. (laughs) Music This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast is kindly supported by School Exams. Now, long-time listeners might remember School Exams kindly sponsored the Joe Morgan episode on remote learning back in January. And I'm super happy to say that they are back and with a brilliant offer for listeners. So School Exams is a unique learning and revision platform providing top quality bite-sized video tutorials delivered by leading examiners in the critical maths and English skills your students need to master at GCSE and Key Stage 2 level. The videos are absolutely brilliant and the teacher tools allow you to set focus groups within your class and assign students personalised revision homework covering exactly what they need help with. This makes school exams ideal for supporting your students in preparing for their GCSE Maths in School assessments this year, as well as helping students catch up on lost learning focusing on individual problem areas. And now comes the brilliant offer. School exams have been working with a number of corporate sponsors to provide fully funded access to the platform for all students in years 5, 6, 10 and 11. Access is live now until the start of the autumn term of 21-22 academic year, so all through the summer break. That, of course, is particularly useful to aid with extra support during the holidays for year groups that will be entering their final year next year. School exams have enough support to allow access for 40, 40 primary or secondary schools and no commitment or payment is needed. So if you want to access this great opportunity, you need to be quick. So stop listening to me and send an email to info at schoolexams.co.uk That's info at schoolexams.co.uk and there'll be a link to that email address in the show notes. Just a reminder that if you want to help spread the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at MrBartonMaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. Now, back to today's episode. So how did I manage to land both Anne Watson and Chris Bolton on the same show? Well, it all started with an email exchange between me and Anne where we were discussing our views on fluency. And during this, Anne happened to casually drop into the conversation that she'd been chatting to Chris Bolton and that there was a possibility that they'd both like to come on my show together if I was up for it. Well, I'll tell you what, I could not have replied with a yes please any quicker. So then the challenge was, what on earth do I ask Anne and Chris? So I set about devising a set of questions that I felt would make, make the most positive and interesting conversation between these two intellectual heavyweights. I had some suggestions, I had some myself, and Twitter had a few too. In the end, I whittled down an initial shortlist of 30 plus down to the eight big questions I wanted to ask Anne and Chris. So here they are. Question one, what do you see as the goals of mathematics education? Number two, what does it mean to be fluent in something in mathematics and is fluency important? Number three, what does it mean to understand something in mathematics and is understanding important? Question four, please tell us one of your favourite maths resources or activities and why do you like it? And I'll tell you what, little spoiler alert there, they could not be more different, those choices that both Anne and Chris go for. That leads nicely into question five where I asked, what do you see as the key similarities and differences between variation theory and Engelman's approach to direct instruction? Question six. (laughs) This was a good one. Is the distinction between a novice and an expert a useful one? If not, why not? And if so, how might we tell if a student has moved from being one to being the other? Question seven. What, if anything, are the most important things for teachers to know and implement from cognitive science research? And finally, three hours later, what is an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Now, foolishly, I'd set aside two hours to get through these. And as I say, three and a half hours later, we just about finished. Uh, You'll be pleased to know I'm very much a bystander in this conversation. I thought by far the most useful thing I could do was to ask the questions and then quickly get out the way. Simply sitting back and learning from two people who know far more about maths education than me and who can articulate their views and reasons with admirable clarity. Do Anne and Chris agree in everything? Of course not. But it is perhaps the areas that they do agree upon that listeners, if you're anything like me, will find the most interesting. Anyway, I know what you're thinking. Just shut up, Craig, so we can actually learn something. Well, believe me, I hear you. So here are Anne Watson and Chris Bolton in conversation. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce two of my favourite people, my favourite educationalists, but favourite people just in generally, uh, Anne Watson and Chris Bolton. So to open up, I'm going to go to you, Anne. Uh, For listeners who just want a bit of extra information about you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Well, if they want my life story in math education, they'll have to listen to the first podcast that I did with John Mason. But I thought for this one, all I would say is is that... um, Most of what I've learned about the teaching of mathematics I've learned from watching teachers in classrooms and working out or talking with them about what they are trying to do and why they're trying to do it that way and um, what they hope their students will learn from what they're doing. And from doing maths myself so that I'm aware of what it means to do maths and to think about maths, puzzles, challenges, recreational maths, occasionally learning a new bit of maths as I've not met before, and also talking through these experiences with others. So the CV isn't as important as those threads which have gone all the way through the CV. And currently, I'm still supervising doctoral students, and I've got three students in particular whose work is very interesting. One of them is looking in great detail at um, lower secondary children who don't understand decimal place value yet, and what they do. Another one is looking at um, how you take how students take a situation and form formalise it, formulate it. It would be called by Pisa. So how to identify the variables and the relationships between the variables. And another student who's looking at um, Davidoff's early number methods where you start with looking at multiplicative quantities rather than counting and adding and those things. And that's really keeping me on my toes intellectually and in terms of thinking and rethinking mathematics, teaching and learning.
0: Fantastic, superb. And uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself as well.
2: Cool. i'm a little more junior so i can definitely fit the life story into a, a minute or so um uh it was for about 2007 i took an interest in uh education as an really as an engine for resolving social disparities that's where i came at this from and 2010 received the offer to join teach first the following year and so spent that whole year uh, reading and planning um for the, the placement ahead 2011 started the two-year placement and for various reasons and really thanks to people like Daisy Christodoulou, Joe Kirby and also my in-school mentor, Penny Jones. From my perspective, quickly began to realize that lots of what I'd been reading over the last year was at best uh, not helpful. It perhaps didn't take the typical classroom context into account or at its worst, I'd go so far as to say, it was truly misguided due to its theoretical assumptions. And at the same time, I spotted what I felt was a blind spot in the sector. Um, almost nobody I spoke to had even heard of cognitive science. The words direct instruction, um, which treated like a gradgrindian and boogeyman. And this included the, um, the academics I'm speaking to, my, my tutors, my mentors at the universities. Um, so I just went down this very different direction and actively dedicated most of my time to reading and learning about both of those. Um, learned so much from it that actually in 2013 I issued my original plan of um, rejoining management consulting to continue in the classroom and joined the I think at its time in 2009 when it was founded truly game-changing King Solomon Academy and I was there for the next three years got to work alongside the visionary Bruno Reddy Um, at the end of that tenure 2016 spent a year at Teach First my role there involved the recruitment and training of 200 new teacher educators who went on to work with 2,000 new Trainees each year, as well as helping to uh, design that new ITT curriculum. So there was a huge opportunity there for impact at scale. Um, and then from 2017 onwards, I've been working to build up Learn. So we're a mission driven team of teachers, scientists, engineers, thinkers of all kinds who are working to provide a student experience where you really learn with certainty. My remit there is Director of Education and Product, and that basically means I am ultimately accountable for the quality of our educational content, as well as the student experience when they come to access and benefit from that content. Um, But yeah, I would say ultimately accountable, but in reality, it is a team of 30 to 40 brilliant people who are actually doing all of the work to assemble all of that. So all credit due to them, I think. That's, that's me. That's the last 11, 12, 13 years of my life thinking about education.
0: Fantastic. Superb, Chris. Right. Well, Anne, back to you, because if I'm writing thinking, you are you the one who's come up with this idea of, of getting you two together? Because I got an email out of the blue and I was like, what is going on here? My eyes lit up <laughs> thinking this is gold. But well, what's the story behind this collaboration?
1: Well, it's very interesting that your reaction was this is gold because I think that's a symptom of one of the reasons I got in touch with Chris because I thought if this guy's as clever as is claimed, I won't say as he claims he is, but (laughs) then the message that I'm hearing as having come from him can't possibly be anything other than a superficial retelling. And there's a lot of that about superficial retellings and describing things to one person or another person, and a and divisiveness, you know, direct instruction versus minimally guided instruction, as if those are the only two possibilities, that sort of thing. And um, and I don't really understand how that kind of tribalism um develops. So I thought, well, one way of getting into that tribalism and saying, look, everything is is more nuanced than it seems to be claimed, would be to talk with Chris and see if there's a conversation that we can have (coughs) on your your podcast. I mean, I have no idea what will happen. We might end up (laughs) deciding that there are tribes with a huge gap in between, but uh, it seems worth doing. And the reaction on Twitter, again, it's a symptom of the fact this is worth doing because I don't know if people are what people are expecting. A clash of the titans, a clash of gladiators or what. I don't think they're going to get that.
0: Well, who knows? I've got the swear machine ready just to beep out any uh, insults that may be uh, floating between you. But yeah, I'm I'm just fascinated to, to be in the middle of this. Now, this is also a bit of a kind of dream come true for me. I love those prime ministerial debates and stuff. I'm picturing myself as a bit of a host here. I'm trying to, yeah, draw out the ways that you both think, trying to find areas of agreement, but also pick into those interesting areas of disagreement as well. So, the way we're going to structure this for the benefit of the listeners is I've chosen eight what I'm calling big questions. And these questions have come from suggestions from from Anne's initial email, um, questions that I want the answers to, um, your opinions on the answers anyway, and also when I went out to Twitter, the most popular questions that came back there. And we're going to alternate. Uh, you're both going to have a chance to answer each of the questions, but we're going to alternate who goes first and who goes second. And then you've got to have an opportunity to respond and so on and so forth. So we'll start with, with possibly one of the biggest questions. And this is coming to Chris first. And that is, uh, Chris, what do you see as the goals of mathematics education?
2: Cool. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick off by equivocating and then I'm going to I'm going to offer maybe six potential goals. And so okay. with the equivocation, I'm saying, yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. I think there are a few challenges that stand in the way. Uh, one, that there are so many reasonable candidates. Um, the other as well is, it, I think it's challenged by the fact that time in school is bounded. Uh, the school experience, I think, is also deeply fractured from student to student across time, across those 11 years. And then from school to school, and even from teacher to teacher, what you get varies dramatically, making it very difficult to move inexorably towards a set of agreed outcomes. And then it's all the more challenging if we think of school as the one source of a mathematical education. A, perhaps it needn't be. And then B, I think, for the most privileged, it probably isn't. And we can read privilege however you want. But I mean, it's privileged access. Um, Having parents from whom you can learn about mathematics. um, As I know many members of the community, their children are learning from them. Having access to not just private tuition, but maybe to some truly brilliant individual private tutors who get to work with you one to one, and they have a dramatic source of inspiration. Imagining what it might have been like to have Pythagoras or Aristotle or somebody as your tutor back in the day. Uh, having access to online learning platforms, which not everybody does, which enable you to spend more time than what you get in school learning. Access to these these masterclasses or mathematical boot camps. There's so many things that pick away at the system as a whole and then fracture and fragment it down into more and more variations. So it is, it is challenging. And, and, and maybe if we thought about that more holistically, we'd be able to say, well, at least school will deal with this goal. And if you want to get to this goal, it's going to take something additional and maybe we should move as a society towards it. But in lieu of that, uh, yeah, I've picked out six, at least off the top of my head, which were to, um, to know the history of the discipline its characters, its struggles, its, its real human story, to be numerate and to function independently in the world, and ideally maybe even to be statistically literate, since this is the branch of mathematics that most often influence policies and politics. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're seeing this right now with all the data and rhetoric made available uh, by the policies drawn up to combat the virus. Uh, My third was to know what it is that professional mathematicians do with their time. And in that sense, perhaps to understand what mathematics truly is, as a discipline. Um, This is an area that I think science in school has won over on us. I think people leave and they've got a sense of what it is a scientist does with their time. But almost everybody seems to leave school, myself included. And you're just perplexed by what mathematicians would do the the classic case is what do you sit around all day like doing sums or answering questions that people gave you I think we're really we are missing something there and I think that's a really important one and then my final three a bit more briefly um, to be positioned such that you have the chance the opportunity to work in any number of future professions that demand quantitative reasoning or quantitative problem solving to be a fifth one, to be able to see connections and structures between domains of knowledge and in the world around us, um, the kinds of connections and structures that mathematical understanding enables. And finally, ultimately, perhaps to find joy in mathematical ideas and enjoyment in pursuing them beyond school, if one was so inclined.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Um, And so it's over to you. Um, Again, it's it's however you want to take it. If you want to answer it from your perspective or respond to anything Chris
1: has said. But what do you see the goals of, of mathematics education? Well, it'll be partly a response because it depends if you're talking about maths education as the maths education system which has its own goals, which are usually political goals, which are usually derived from international tests or something like that, Um, uh, or or whether we're talking about more generally. And if we're talking about more generally, I would absolutely agree with Chris's list, except that I um, I might not couch it all in terms of knowledge. I might want also there to be a sense of Um, confidence um, a a personal relationship a personal investment in in all those forms of knowing that he described all those well they're not forms of knowing all those knowing about that he described um, and a sense of empowerment because um, it's it's I mean maths is wonderful it's about the it's one of the few subjects that in school or out of school or anywhere else, you can sort of know that you're right. Not always, but there are mechanisms for knowing whether you're right or not. You can check answers or you can prove things or you can test things out in, in real situations or something like that. And you can do that yourself and you can know that you did that in your own head. And there aren't many places in school where you can do that. And that's so important for all children and particularly for adolescents. Um, but what, what, why, why doesn't that happen is, um, is the problem, because the goals of the mathematics education system channel things in a particular direction, which doesn't allow for all those things that Chris talked about. Um, empowerment is probably the most important thing because if you really take empowerment seriously, then you've got to let learners explore and have their own ideas and value their ideas and let them interrogate their own ideas and help them learn how to do that and to become independent mathematical thinkers as well as uh, channeling whatever it is they need to do in order to pass the test. Because passing the test is socially important and it might not be mathematically important at all it might actually contradict some of the aims that chris has has described and i think at the moment certainly the primary curriculum p stage two does contradict those things doesn't help at best doesn't help at worst contradicts so um So I'd like to see a mathematics education system that was less amenable to being mangled so that it becomes a a dumping through particular hoops that don't necessarily have any mathematical value or value in terms of personal empowerment. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, that, it's a disappointing start. This, because We've not got that conflict.
0: I wanted to kind of kickstart things where, where you're saying each other's talking nonsense here. Um, I'll just come back to Chris. Any response to any of, of what Anne said? Seems seems to be agreeing with um, certainly the majority of what you say. Anything to add before we move on to the second big question?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do agree with most of it. I think some of the points around confidence and empowerment, interestingly, might come out in the second question from my point of view as well. The, the only interesting thing I might add, which you know, maybe gets you into a bit of conflict if if this is helpful, um, I, I actually, like the most important part, and I agree with this completely, you've got to let learners explore and have their own ideas, interrogate their own ideas. You've got to help them to do that. You've got to help them to become independent mathematical thinkers. For me, I'm not sure how and even whether we can really achieve that in a mass education system, in the school system. There are reasons why I think that is particularly challenging. Um, And I think our school system is particularly resilient to attempts to achieve that on scale, not due to any uh, malice or even necessarily incompetence, but just There is something particular about the fact that we are boxing up roughly 30 kids and one adult in a room, um, which is just about big enough to hold them all, maybe once a day, five days a week, maybe only three days a week. And then we have um, all these other things that are unidentified around the, the examination system, social pressures and so forth, that I think I might be so cynical as to say that they collectively contrive to make that outcome impossible on mass in the school system and I'm very deliberate with saying on mass because I appreciate there may be individual teachers or schools that can achieve it but that's very different from being able to achieve it in all schools Um, so I don't know whether you want to dive into that more or move on to the second Well
1: I I will I mean I knew that that's this is where we would have to find a gap because um, Chris talks about a mass system and a mass system um, if you if you say it's going to stay as a mass system, then you have to have some kind of idea of control. Whereas I talk about from the bottom up and think about the bottom up, thinking very much about pupils and teacher in classroom interrelating and out of classroom. What work? What learning do you take home? And those sorts of things. What What is that um, in terms of placing it within human development? more generally of children so we're coming from different directions and there is a kind of a space and I think that the space between us is actually about a real commitment and investment in in, uh, subject-specific teacher training um, of a very particular kind and that, that really focuses on mathematics and mathematical thinking and what it takes to learn mathematics, what it takes to do mathematics. Um, and I think that there was a time when some teacher education establishments went down a sort of political route where there were sessions on gender, sessions on social class, sessions on um, the... Uh, critical mathematics, sessions on all sorts of interesting things, but not sessions on what does it mean to understand decimal place value. Primary teachers who used to get that sort of input were moving towards generic stuff because they weren't having, you know, sometimes some teacher training programmes, six hours of maths for a primary school teacher in the whole of their training. When most of what happens in primary school are the foundations of the number symbol system, which is a symbol system which has to be learned. And they just weren't getting that. So there was a lot that wasn't happening. And then this ridiculous idea that if you send the people out into schools where there are teachers who have varying levels of competence and confidence and knowledge, somehow things will be better rather than a real investment in teacher education that would really make things better and you look at um, countries on the Pacific Rim, the quality and the detail of the training in the teaching of mathematics is, is light years beyond what is on offer here and teachers really understanding the maths that they're teaching in great depth and great connectivity as well and great coherence. Um, which we, we don't do. Why don't we do it? Presumably because it's maths and anybody can show a child how to do something. But then you get this kind of ridiculous, I mean, the example I'm carrying around at the moment, because I like to have telling examples. The example um, of a child who was t- had to take nine away from 17, It was a word problem, and and they'd done the thinking about the word problem, and they knew they had to subtract 9 from 17. So had been beautifully taught how to do column subtraction. Set it out as a column calculation. Couldn't take 9 from 7. Disengaged 10 from the 10s column. Even said, I've got to use 10 from here crosses out the one that's in the tens column, writes a one next to the 17 in the ones column, and it's little lines underneath and a subtraction sign. This is how I do it, she said. And then I sat there and I thought, well, you've done all that beautifully. You're compliant. You've learnt. You've been trained to do the key stage two test. But at the end of it, you still can't take nine from 17. And that's, that's that's what I mean about the mangling. That mangling wouldn't happen if, firstly, the curriculum goals were a bit more mathematically useful. And and secondly, there was much more training and understanding and very careful resourcing.
0: Okay. Well, what I'm going to do, because, again, it's one of those things where we, we could talk all day about one of these questions and, and it would be fascinating. But I think... As we get through these questions and we get to more specific things, I I think that'll help frame this discussion um, a a bit clearer. So I'm going to move on, if it's okay with both of you, to, to, to the second question. Now, with regard to this, when I went out to Twitter, the most popular thing people wanted me to do with both of you was to give you a topic and ask you to describe how you would plan it, how you would teach it, and so on. I think that the problem with a question so complex as that is that, well planning and teaching is so complex that that it'd be very hard to find those similarities and differences. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, is have a specific topic in mind, perhaps as we work through some of these questions, if it helps give a more tangible um, example. And for some reason, the, the most popular topic by a long way was Pythagoras to year 10s. Mm. Four different people messaged me with that one. I've no idea why Pythagoras is in people's minds. So Probably if it's
1: a teaching you want to get... year 10 at the time.
0: That is it. And also Colin Foster's keynote at the MA conference was about understanding in Pythagoras. And maybe that's swimming around as as well. So um, no requirement at all. But if you did want to give an example, perhaps you could try and tie it back to Pythagoras. But it doesn't matter if you want to use other ones. So anyway, let's move on to these questions. So I'm coming to you first, Anne, with this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it mean to be fluent in something in mathematics? And is fluency important?
1: Okay, so I will talk about Pythagoras's theorem or the Pythagorean theorem. Um, I was tempted to talk about um, solving simultaneous equations because of Chris's previous podcast because I thought his analysis of all the things you need to know and to do and all the th- uh, was was beautiful. but what he didn't address was why on earth are we teaching this anyway? And so I want to start with the Pythagoras and think, well, it's got to be about why are we teaching this anyway? Um, One of the reasons that it is such a big thing is because it's almost like a cultural artefact. It's something that if you're going to say that you're educated in the Western world, you have to be able to have some sort of nodding acquaintanceship with Pythagoras. It's like a milestone. Oh, I've done Pythagoras. I've done. Pythagoras. <laughs> um, so there's a cultural significance, which is an over significance, um, but there's there's the there's uh, there's another um, thing which is much more mathematically important, which is that it's a reasoning tool in many many contexts. It's a reasoning tool for finding distances. It's a reasoning tool for the relationships between ratios, sine, cos, whatever. Um, it's a, a reasoning tool for um, in number theory. It's quite an interesting thing to have around. If you want to do number puzzles, if you're following into number theory, it's quite a useful thing to have. So it's got a usefulness across all kinds of areas of mathematics. And beyond, Um, personally, I don't suppose the Egyptians ever generalised it. You know, people say, oh, that's how they built their pyramids. Well, we just don't know. We do know that it's probably much earlier than Pythagoras. So there's this cultural thing about attaching a European name to something that's been around in the zeitgeist. So there's quite a lot of talking around it um, that place it in this this human endeavour that Chris was talking about. But you see, I wouldn't start in year 10. I would start much earlier because I like to think in terms of what are the threads that run through mathematics. And if all you want is for children to churn out this squared plus this squared equals this squared, so if I know what the square root button does, then I can ca- I can calculate all sorts of things. If that's all you want them to do, then why? Why is it in the curriculum? And you can be fluent with that, but still have no mathematical sense of its purpose, and fail. you can still fail to use it in situations where it's the obvious thing to use, like distances on a coordinate grid or something. So fluency for me includes Um, a range of things, not just being able to do the doing, but also having having that theorem come to mind in appropriate contexts fluently so that when I see something which is either in a right angle or is uh, something that is amenable to being put in a right angle, then Pythagoras is one of the things that fluently comes to mind along with the things that I could then do with it. So that's, that's for me, it's very important that fluency includes those two things. And I think the way that fluency is described in the national curriculum kind of includes that because the more traditional fluency of I can do these things very quickly without mistakes, is tucked inside a more general definition of fluency. Having said that, of course, doing things quickly without mistakes is the thing that's emphasised, because if you're not sure of the mathematics, then at least you can focus on the doing, and you know that that's what you're going to have to do in a test, for instance. So when I say start much earlier, what am I talking about? What are the threads? Um, Well... I've got to know something about preservation of area, but that's something which children have very naturally and with a bit of luck is developed in early years. Of course, it isn't going to be developed in early years now because it's been taken out of the holes. So, so, that kind of development of cutting and moving and shaping, you know, the things that as a parent you probably do, Craig, because you know it's not done formally at early years anymore. You, but you know how valuable it is, and so you do those things. So preservation of area, the reasoning that is based on cutting things up and moving things around, that's got to be fluent. The um, So there's fluency in that kind of understanding and that kind of, sense of cutting things up and moving them around there's got to be fluency of knowing what the little two in the air is because that's part of our symbol system and it has to be learned and it has to be learned as a human invention this is how we write it and there's the fluency of knowing that to undo that you use your square root button and um if you're if you if you've got whole numbers that are perfect squares then it would be quite useful to have those fluently in your mind as well. Um, You've you've got to have um, some kind of understanding that you bring to it. I'm I'm saying all this before you worry about the fluency of doing. Because you've got to help children have an idea of the purpose for them doing all this. It's like... You know, why am I learning Latin? If I go to Italy, I'm not going to order my food in Latin, am I? So it's why am I learning this Pythagoras thing? Well, because sometimes your diagonal doesn't fit. You can't measure it. You might be able to measure your two other bits, but you can't measure that because your ruler isn't fine enough to do it. There's something wrong. Working on squared paper is a terrific way to see, doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. It's kind of this, but it kind of isn't. That sort of thing. Why doesn't it fit? What do we, when does it fit? Because it's the when does it fit that gives you the Pythagorean triples, which kids can then get excited about and start churning numbers about and that sort of thing. But they can't do that if they're not fluent with the squaring and the square roots. So they've got to have those tools. Otherwise the fun of playing with Pythagorean triples isn't fun, it's just another another chore. So there's something there and I haven't even got to the theorem yet. Um, There's another way of approaching it, which is to be looking at all kinds of triangles and seeing if, you label the sides A, B and C, does A squared plus B squared, is it greater than C squared or less than C squared? B squared plus C squared, is it greater than A squared or less than A squared? And classifying all those, whole class doing it, measuring as accurately as they can, maybe using GeoGebra so they get a really accurate measurement, doing that, plastering up all the results, lots of fluency there about squaring and square rooting, lots of fluency, being developed, but in the context of sorting these things out. Here's all the ones where it's less than, here's the ones where it's greater than. And, oh, look, we've got this lot in the middle that are kind of equal or approximately equal, or pretty closely equal. What is special about those triangles? So there's a fluency there in the squaring and the comparing and the understanding, the importance of contrast the importance of classifying, the importance of sorting. And then out of that comes, look, these right-angled triangles are pretty special, aren't they? When all that's been done, there's a purpose for getting quick at the the, the A-squared and the (laughs) B-squared and the C-squared, at doing the doing. And you can even have more mathematical problems after that that uh, where, where this this sense of squaring and so on becomes important, like um, obviously you know going out in the playground if you're teaching it in the summer and doing things in the playground, or um, how much ribbon do you need to wrap up a, a, a parcel like this using the sort of diagonals over the corner, or the one I like, which is the spider and the fly, do you know this? you've got a rectangular room, you've got a creature up in the top corner over there and it wants to get over there, and what's the distance the spider has to walk? What's the difference the fly has to fly? You do all that before fluency because that tells you why you need the fluency. So the fluency and practice, which you can then do, and you might even go home and look at Khan Academy to remind you what it was you did when you solved those problems. You pin it down with Khan Academy or something like that, and then you can practice, practice, practice until you get really fluent.
0: Okay, fantastic And I like that. So um over to Chris. Again, same deal. You can either respond directly to Anne mm. or answer it in your own terms. What does it mean to be fluent in something in mathematics?
2: Cool. I'll sort of I'll mostly answer it in my own terms first and then see. Because there's there's lots of fantastic stuff in there and there's some things I picked out which I really, really loved. I think the biggest source of a uh, difference maybe in our thinking might be something around the ordering, this idea at the end there of uh, you, do, you do all these things before the fluency. I'm wondering if I might piece it the other way around, but there's still a bit more thinking and understanding to do that before I'll know. So I'll, I'll go through my way of thinking about this to begin with, and then we'll maybe try and dive into that a bit more. Um, so the way that I conceptualize a fluency, what it means to me is that you are bypassing working memory. So that's a, it's a little narrow way of thinking about it, but I can, and I can come back to why I think that's a little bit narrow, but still helpful. I can offer some uh, concrete examples for it. And I actually want to start with where I learned French, because that is a domain, language learning, where people use the term fluent and fluency all the time. Um, and I would say that before being fluent, I would consciously think about what I wanted to say in English. And then, perhaps very quickly as I became more able, I would translate that into French using what I knew. Um, Whereas now, I do the conscious thinking itself in French. So I'm not using any of this conscious working memory capacity to do translation. I just know what I want to say directly in French. Now, before becoming fluent, speaking French was, um, was hard. It was fraught with anxiety. Could I think quickly enough? What will this person think of me? I had two voices in my head at any one time. The one in English, the one that's sort of burgeoning in French, while I'm actually still trying to figure out what I want to say in the future after I finally uttered the words I want to say now or wanted to say moments ago. I'm stumbling and stuttering a lot. It can be a little embarrassing. Whereas after becoming fluent, I now feel very comfortable and very confident, even though my French isn't perfect. And I'm not fluent like a native speaker. Someone Sometimes they hesitate and say I'm fluent in French because people expect you to be like a native speaker. And I'm not there, but I've actually held down an hour-long conversation with a taxi driver when going through Paris one time. And another time after receiving an offensively poor Bloody Mary cocktail for 15 euros at a tourist trap cafe, I've successfully argued in French with the French-speaking waiter that the cost for that should be taken off my bill. (laughs) So I, I feel confident enough in saying I can speak French with some degree of fluency. And all my working memory capacity seems to be used for thinking about the thing I really care about, which isn't to say... How do i how do I say this in French? That's not what I care about. What I care about is what do I want to communicate to you this French speaking individual and that's all I'm really consciously worried about anymore so with the, and I think where there were connections to some of the earlier things um and you were saying uh really early on, you said I talked a lot in terms of knowing, but for you, it was really important to talk a little bit more in terms of almost like personal confidence and empowerment. And I suppose, for me, that confidence, that empowerment, all of these things, they come as a, as a function of the knowing with the fluency. These kind of these sentiments start to uh, develop out of that. So uh, that's like one connection to our earlier conversation. Sp- particular to mathematics, then, uh, I see a similar process both in myself and in others and students all the time one way of thinking about this was at GCSE, expanding a pair of brackets. That is a two-mark question on your exam paper. Uh, The simultaneous equations example, that is a six-mark question maybe on your exam paper. They are considered whole topics. They take multiple lessons. You do them maybe once every few months, and you kind of do them in isolation. Whereas at A-level, you suddenly very quickly discover that you're going to have to do both of these things that were entire exam questions just months ago, every day, multiple times a day. Uh, They're now just treated the six mark process of solving simultaneous equations. It's treated almost like a single step in the working through of a much longer chain of thought that can span a whole A4 page. And I think that's only possible once you become fluent. So you know um, how to expand or how to solve and you're not really doing it with any conscious thought. You, you have to do the sort of arithmetic processing here and there. But the, like what I'm having to do and how I'm going to sit on my working and what step comes next, that's now like riding a bike, tying your shoelaces, learning to drive, things, something that once took a lot of conscious, active thought. And now it takes none. And you're able to focus on what really matters to you in that moment, which in those contexts is all getting somewhere, You're know, worrying about how you get there anymore. So for that reason, I do think fluency is essential. I I think unless those basic processes are fluent and automatic, that they take no working memory to process, we can never hope that students will be able to engage in the much more interesting problem solving, investigation proof, other kinds of mathematical thought that reveal these fascinating patterns and structures in the world around us. Um, So this is where I wonder whether the order thing might be slightly different. I've I agree with the idea that, you know, can you do a lot of the school Pythagoras seems to focus on can you do the A squared plus B squared and then can you square root something? And that is just so trivial. It doesn't really matter. And you almost just want to get to fluency on that so that can be a given. And know you can do these more interesting things with Pythagoras. Um an example I, I I thought about earlier about how that might be helpful. There's this question I love coming back to, and it's similar to something um the ideas, the examples that Anne gave. The, the problem was a word problem, and it's, um, I remember doing this with a year nine class, mixed attainment, but some really, really bright kids in it. None of them could do this question. And the question was, a boy and a girl stand back to back. Um, they each turn left, they walk forward four meters. No, sorry, they walk forward three meters, each turn left, walk forward four meters, how far apart are they? And most of the kids, uh, they draw the diagram incorrectly. They, so A, they don't think to draw a diagram. Then when they do, they draw it incorrectly because they don't think about the individual's perspective and turning left is different. So they say they're eight meters apart. And only if and where. But once they've got the diagram, some of them still struggle because it's two right-angled triangles. Some of them see it and they can they see the application right away. Um, and even in that, that particular lesson, they were struggling. But they had a massive hint in that lesson, which is that the lesson was all about Pythagoras' theorem. So there is this thing about just everything that Anne was talking about, about how you want all of that to be kind of trivial and to be able to see when and how Pythagoras' theorem might be applied and be able to apply any kind of now calculation you're going to do with it it's so trivially, because it's fluent, that it's not even a part of your mental processing. Um, if you wanted to dive into it in detail, I think um, Frederick Reif, in his book, he talks about... I think it's utility, yeah, utility conditions is this super category, and then he splits it out into applicability and validity. So his thinking, he's mostly thinking about cognitive science and teaching, uh, so and teaching science and in particular physics. But his way of uh, codifying it is: once you know how to do a thing, you need to know when it's applicable, and you need to know um, in some instances when it might be valid as well. Um, and I think that you know, so again like maybe that's a thing that can be consciously developed. I want to say developed rather I have to say developed rather than taught because when I think of taught I think about something very direct. So I could say for that novel problem you can use Pythagoras' for, uh, theorem to solve it. here's how you do it. I could teach that. but that's kind of not what we want is it what we want is that the child in that or the student or anybody in that instance, notices that that is a condition within which they could apply that idea. And that's a, a totally different idea now. It's how do you develop that um, that ability to spontaneously notice that I can draw on some knowledge I have to help me in this moment. And this is finally um, what I meant when I said something about my earliest definition is a little narrow. I didn't necessarily mean it was narrow in the way I think Anne hinted at, where my definition is almost that subset. Um, if I'm consciously thinking in French and speaking to somebody directly in French, and and I've I've just made the claim that I'm using no working memory to do this, so what part of me is it that's now doing the thinking? What part of me is it that is automatically um, doing this thinking in French? And in the same way, it becomes, what part of me is it that is almost unconsciously noticing that I can apply trigonometry or Pythagoras' theorem or those fascinating problems like, um, I don't even know if I can frame it right, but it's like uh, there's a pile of wood and Anne on her own can chop it up in this much time. Chris comes along and on his own, he can chop it up in this much time. Uh, how long will it take them if they do it together? And you can actually model that arithmetically. You can model it as the summation of two fractions. And if you do it that, suddenly it becomes really easy. You're just adding two fractions. But when do you notice that? And what does it take to be able to notice it? And what part of your psyche is it that does that noticing it's I actually think this is a little bit beyond the cognitive model right now. This, the closest thing I hear to people talking about this now is the likes of Sam Harris talking with people about the nature of consciousness and whether consciousness can persist outside beyond the death of the body. It's very philosophical now. Um, so, but I still find this cognitive version of it helpful. And, yeah, I guess to try and get us back into some conflict, um, I, th- I, I definitely agree with the desire for the, the need for why. I 100% agree with that. We embed that into everything we do at Upload constantly, constantly, constantly we're asking, using Dan Meyer's language even, if this is the aspirin, what is the headache? Um, maybe I didn't do that well enough for simultaneous equations, or maybe I didn't talk about it well enough. And maybe I didn't do it because I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough. And I think that is a gap in teacher training. It's really, really hard to go out there and find what is a and, and uh, uh, what is the utility of learn, knowing about this thing in a way that you, dear eleven-year-old, will be able to get your head around and grapple with right now? And sometimes the coward's way out is just to say, "Here's a problem you can't answer yet, but in a moment we'll be able to answer it." It's the the, the easy answer, but not necessarily the best answer. Um, so I agree with that. But then I would almost want to get into, yeah, let's let's say let's have this kind of fluency in place, and once that trivial thing is fluent hopefully now your conscious mind is liberated to be able to think about way more interesting connections and patterns um i did quite like i I think i think about this a little differently but this was interesting um the idea of um asking students to draw out all of these triangles and look at the greater than less than equal to conditions the traditional version of this i've seen is do an investigation um draw lots of right angle triangles, do a table, look at the relationship between them all, try to discover Pythagoras' theorem. Total mm-hmm. nightmare. And uh, listeners can't see it, but I can mm-hmm. see and waving a hand to agree that no <laughs> let's go. The way I've thought about it, which is close but, dis- but a little bit different actually, is um let me tell you, let me just tell you Pythagoras' theorem. This is a fact, it's a factual relationship. We've known about it for thousands of years. Um and maybe we do some like little limited practice with. Um, modeling things out and mapping things out. It's not actually website. I'd actually start with the geometry, and I'd just look at the the areas of squares because I think that's simpler and it removes more steps. But let's say we're at to this point. Um, I, I think there's a generative activity to be done around. Yeah, draw lots of right angle triangles and find one for me for which this is not true within a greater, you know, within a margin of error. Um, but yeah, there's something extra in this which is interesting around looking at the cases where it is greater than or less than and. Yeah, I think I think that could be. You know, I'd, I'd love to experiment with that. I think that was really interesting. I don't know whether you intended for that to be before an explication of the relationship, and or whether it, it it comes afterwards and it's still there's a degree of discovery that it, this is the equality holds true for right angle triangles. But either way, it's still a step up from yeah the earlier investigation I've seen.
1: Well, I yeah, absolutely it. agree with you about this kind of random measuring and hoping business. Um, and, and then the message goes around the classroom. It's Pythagoras, it's Pythagoras. <laughs> it's a
0: bit
1: pointless. Um, it, it, comes, it comes from a, 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 an interesting paper by Nitza moshevitz Hadar from For the Learning of Mathematics, which was published way back in the 80s or 90s or something. And um, she talks about the notion of surprise. That a lot of the important relationships in mathematics are surprises. But they're only surprises if you know that other things might be possible. Mm. So to sort of pull things out of the hat and say this is Pythagoras and it's special isn't special if you don't know that other things are, are possible. But I thought I thought your um, a lot of what you said was was really interesting. But the the parallel with language I think doesn't quite work because. You you knew that the bloody Mary was disgusting. You knew you wanted to talk about it. You understood, you understood the, the context within which you were, and so that the words needed to come to work with that context. In in mathematics, you're not usually in a context that you understand from everyday life. So you haven't necessarily got other knowledge to draw on. So so which is why I would want to kind of be doing things first but I'm not saying that I want them to discover Pythagoras by working out how much ribbon they need to wrap a parcel I'm not saying that I'm saying that, um, that there's, there's some guidance about relationships between things I mean the classic one which um, you may know is the tilted square on square dotty paper now unless at some stage you actually hint that squaring might be a useful thing to do. People are not going to get Pythagoras out of that. They're going to get some nice stuff, but they're not necessarily going to get Pythagoras. There's nothing wrong with telling them. But that's perhaps not the time to stop and start practicing abstract applications of squaring numbers and square rooting and things. But you wouldn't be teaching, I hope, Pythagoras unless children were fluent with the additive relationship so that they knew that if P plus Q equals R then they could reorganize it and do subtracting and find the one that they don't know you wouldn't be you wouldn't be teaching it you hope if they weren't fluent with understanding what squaring is and square rooting if you need that as well or square numbers. You wouldn't be teaching it, would you? Well, unfortunately, very often people are. Teaching it, well, add, just just transforming a, a simple additive equation is still an effort. And um, having to square things by multiplying them out yourself, instead of being allowed to use a calculator, or knowing your square numbers, one or other of those. You, so, so this is what I mean by I wouldn't start thinking about Pythagoras in year 10. I'd be thinking, what are the things that need to be fluent when we get to working with right-angled triangles? And there's quite a lot of things that need to be need to be fluent. One teacher I worked with used to call it trickle-trig. So that you if you know you're going to teach trigonometry, you start trickling in. Yet, yeah, this was a teacher, by the way, who didn't have to have the technical terms of retrieval and spacing and all that stuff. He just knew from experience and for thinking it through that you had to kind of be gradually making sure that, that those things were easily accessible in the memory and would be fluent when they came, the various things that you would need when you zapped them with trigonometry at some stage. So, so I think that we both recognise the need for fluency, but what is the fluency with Pythagoras? And the fluencies that you need are the additive relationship and the squaring and the square rooting. And if that doesn't come to mind, you, you, you show them. I mean, why not? You know, They're not going to discover it by measuring the playground. They're not going to discover it um and they don't know what it is you want them to know what it is you're expecting them to find they don't know that but but some of what you said um reminded me of a paper that i read by this is trouble with age Patricia herbst i mean i read stuff in mass education i don't read the more generic stuff, because I want to know how it affects maths. Patricio Herbst, um, where he talked about the the economy of time and effort in teaching. That you're always having to balance one thing with respect to another. And I would have thought that there were so many practical situations in which Pythagoras is the tool you need That to not do that as a starting place so that children are are reminded that mathematics gives us tools, gives us tools that we can use in situations rather than the other way around, which is it's Friday, we've been doing Pythagoras all week, so we have obviously got to use Pythagoras. I don't think that approach helps them to know when to do something. Um, Gilbert Ryle talks about knowing what and knowing what else. Knowing why, knowing what, knowing why, knowing how. Um, John has added to this quite usefully, um, knowing when and knowing to. Knowing to use Pythagoras. And, um, And I don't think that after you've had several lessons on Pythagoras, is going to help you know to use Pythagoras, and that's the my argument for doing things the other way around. Okay, so Chris, do you want to come
0: back on any of that or add to any of that before we start to move to understanding, which feels to me like something we're edging towards anyway? But um, anything to add to Anne's response to yours?
2: I think some of them are uh, the probably things I need to um go away and do more thinking about actually uh the, the notion of surprise i wouldn't really want to comment on without doing more reading and thinking i think there's something interesting in that um the idea that there's a distinction in the example about language versus mathematics uh, that you know the the context within your which and you want to talk about within which you are and you want to talk about in language again i think it's very interesting and i suspect there's some like there's something really, like really true within that. Probably I'm not uh, off the cuff convinced it um, kind of ruins my beautiful analogy, but I want to do more thinking about that before I know for sure. So we'll have to do that offline, sadly. Um, I suppose the only other thing that comes through is <laughs> yeah. And I was I was thinking this very much, and as you said, it, um, you know, you wouldn't. I hope. Teach Pythagoras' theorem before people were fluent in and this and that, and and then you said it yourself. Of course, people often are. Um, in my personal experience, almost entirely, that is what's happening. Um, and I suppose this speaks to some of what I said earlier about the the recognition that we're in this this ginormous system. It's it's almost incomprehensible the size of it. You know? 600,000 teachers, tens of thousands of schools, individuals are not very good at thinking about systems at this kind of scale and um, their their immutability or what it takes to edge them in even even one direction. And you can push it like a lever from Ofsted and it overshoots in some other random direction and nobody really understood what the purpose was of that lever pull anyway. Yeah, the systems are really complex. And um, you know why do we have so many lessons of Pythagoras' theorem when? Students aren't fluent in the, the fundamentals because of this, this system within which we operate and its complexities and its idiosyncrasies. And I, and I am fascinated, obviously, as someone who now works adjacent to the school system, um, sort of a part of it, but also working from um, this, this base of, of technology and what it is we might do with technology that is uh, as yet um, unleveraged or unexplored. A part of me hopes that there's things we can do with that that would, um, yeah, you know, that would almost enable or facilitate this kind of next-level school experience. And again, that's probably a whole other thing to we could we could spend an hour on. So maybe we'll come back to that another time.
0: Okay, I'm going to make a call, if that's okay, then, that we're going to move on to to the next question. Mm. Um, Again, I I literally could listen to you two talk um, all day long here. Um, So let's move on to the question about understanding. I'm coming to you first, Chris, on this. Mm. So uh, similar to fluency, this time, though, what does it mean to understand something in mathematics? And is understanding important?
2: Okay, so I think this one is a deeply problematic word, and I kind of hate it, (laughs) even though I use it myself all the time. It's problematic because it presupposes a binary state. Um, If you ask somebody, you know, do you understand it? You're automatically inviting a yes, no response. And therefore, I think we often conceptualize understanding as a thing you either do or you have Mm. or you do not or you have not. And I think that's entirely incorrect. Instead, I think understanding is a continuum and all you ever have is less or more understanding. I think it never ends. There is no finish point at which you now understand and you understand it all and you understand everything. There's always more that you can understand or better that you can understand. Uh, For me, this maps on quite neatly onto Willingham's idea of uh, inflexible and flexible knowledge, where he too has a continuum there, uh, which I think has been very helpful for me in conceptualising what's happening in the in the classroom um and then okay so how do we but it, but is it important yeah it's really important um but i i think it'd be great to hear if there's an alternative to this i think we can only really define it in terms of how people respond to stimuli prompts questions uh um, or you know, statements or you know, command words that are sometimes conceived of as a question whether that's anything from um Closed response, you know, as an MCQ multiple choice question, closed response as in what is the answer and there's a single correct answer, or whether it's, me- um, and in those cases, it's measured objectively, you got it right or wrong, um, or whether it's something more open, uh, which might be judged subjectively. Uh, sometimes even you can have, uh, you could invite a, an, an exercise in problem solving or investigation where there are multiple routes towards a a cogent and arguably correct final answer but perhaps there's something about the way you've reasoned it or the mathematics you've brought to bear which or the way you've communicated it which is more or less elegant and that can only be judged subjectively not rightly or wrongly Um, there's something inherently behaviorist about talking about stimuli stimulus and response uh, prompts and responses and so forth And the reason I think we're somewhat bounded by that behaviorist framework, uh, unless someone can convince me otherwise, is because we can't use an MRI scan just yet to peer into somebody's brain and judge how well they understand something. Um, But I do think it's important because it has implications. Not only is understanding important, but understanding how we measure it in those terms is important because it has implications for how we design instruction and what we suppose our goals of instruction are. and then, yeah, it's it, it finally, it's, of course, I can tie it to Pythagoras a little bit. It, it's definitely more important to understand more rather than less. Who's ever going to argue in favor in defense of less understanding? It's never going to happen. But also, why is more understanding more important? It implies greater expertise, greater power, command of mathematical ideas, uh, confidence. Many of the things Anne spoke about right at the start, and I touched on a little bit. Um, probably even in being able to find greater joy in all of them. Um, so how, how on earth do we define an appropriate degree of understanding, whether that's for school learning or, or something beyond school? How do we draw a line? The only way I can think of, of doing it is this idea of defining it in terms of question and answer, stimulus response. And also, again, I think our system right now is so far removed for being able to do that. I, I feel like it leaves teachers pretty much adrift. I think the kinds of questions that might speak to a greater or lesser understanding, you will never find them in the uh, exam papers, the the terminal exam papers, because the unpredictability uh, with which students across the country will be able to uh, respond to them uh, threatens the reliability of those exam papers. And reliability is fundamentally uh, political. You need exam papers year on year to be reliable because that implies no matter which year you sit your exam, you are not at an unfair advantage or disadvantage. So we are somewhat constrained within the system, it is difficult uh, for teachers. But concretely, what might this look like for Pythagoras' theorem? I think a a question like the one I shared earlier might fit within this boy and girl back to back. I think uh, some of the things Anne shared there similarly, um, a big focus for me on being able to do the geometric manipulations, as well as the algebraic and the numeric uh, questions, like one Dan Willi- uh, Dylan Williams has posed. Uh, an MCQ where have got six right angles. You've got, no, so you've got six triangles. Um, the question is something like, for which of these does a squared plus b squared equal c squared hold true? Or for which of these does a squared plus c squared, b squared, sorry, equal? c squared it's something like that and i think it's that some of them are right angles and some of them aren't um but it, it's really just it's just a function of having more types of questions and more variation in what we ask more ideas being connected together seeing and giving being given the opportunity to apply it in more contexts um and more spontaneously so not just because this is the Pythagoras theorem lesson um and some of these questions right now, they seem brilliant and insightful, and you see them and you think, "Gosh, I never would have thought to ask that." And it's only because we're not we're not used to asking them, and we're not used to asking them because they tend not to be posed in the exams, um, like they spoke about. And if actually they did become much more embedded, they might start to seem more mundane to us because they're just the normal questions, they're the standard questions that you ask about Pythagoras' theorem. But I think that is okay. I don't think the questions themselves need to appear insightful and brilliant to us as teachers. I think we just need to have sufficient variation across them that um, you know this idea of being trapped at the surface level when it comes to problem solving that Dylan Williams talks about, so Daniel Williams talks about, starts to break apart. The silos break down, the walls break down. You start to see that you can apply these ideas to multiple contexts fluently, easily. You start to notice those cases. Um, curiously, if you look at the key stage three exam papers up until they were discontinued, and I don't mean discontinued until the exams stopped happening. I mean, the papers were produced even beyond the exams, I think, Uh, with the exams beyond the examination point haven't been removed. I think they continued to produce the exam papers for a while. I've always felt that the questions in those papers are more demanding with lower level content than the questions in the GCSE exam papers. And again, that tells you, and I think that the range that they presented year on year definitely required you to have what I'm going to call like a greater understanding or greater fluency or greater, more flexible knowledge with these ideas. So, this is another example of where the the system um, is driving some of our behaviors and how we think in the classroom. Um, And if, but, but while at the same time, you can use the same tools, but just applied in a different way with greater variability, greater unexpectedness. Uh, look at the, the uproar in response to whose sweets was it? Was it Sophie's suites? Hannah's suites, 2015 edXL paper, I think. Just because, I mean, I looked at it, I thought this was going to be a truly, um, maybe it was 2017. I thought this was going to be a really demanding question. And I looked at it and I realized all it's asked them to do is connect together two ideas they've never had to connect before, which is uh, tree diagrams and a bit of algebra. Um, so yeah, more, okay, that is my somewhat sprawling, uh, spiel on understanding because it it is a bit, it's a moving target in some ways. Uh, in other ways, I think it's clearly defined in other ways. It's not, it keeps moving. So I'll stop there and see, and what you think about all this and see if there's anything worth diving into a bit more.
0: Okay, Anne, so it's over to you. Once again, your choice to either respond directly to Chris or to answer the question in your own terms. And just as a reminder to listeners, what we're talking about now, of course, is what does it mean to understand something in mathematics and is understanding important?
1: Okay, well, I absolutely agree with Chris about the problem with the binaries, about understanding and not understanding. And I did a bit of work on this way back in the early two thousands um, to try to find out what teachers meant when they said understanding, because as I've said before, you know, I learned most of what I learned through talking to teachers, um, and that they all went immediately to Skemp because that was in their training, and I've always found Skemp a bit inadequate to express what teachers really mean, so I probed and probed and ended up with um, several different uses of understanding, some of which are easily testable, um, but most of which are not. So I do agree with Chris, but I did come up with some categories which I thought were useful for teachers to think about in terms of what needed to be included in their teaching if they were to help their learners achieve the kinds of complex understanding that they were describing. Um, but it was always a little bit hand-wavy. But it did, it did, um, after a bit of analysis and thinking about it and so on, and taking what I found back to teachers, I never wrote this up as a bit of research, but I did write it up in um, 2002, in one of the Open University PGCE course texts, because that's why I did the work. Um, There's the, what Skemp would call instrumental, but which I think is better called procedural. Can you do the procedures? Because in order for something to be instrumental, it's got to be an instrument for something. It's got to be a tool for something. And so that connection with what it does for you, what its use is in mathematics, that seems to me to be a different kind of further level of understanding. So can I do the procedures? Um, Its usefulness is part of understanding, it's contextual usefulness. I I have a lovely story about fairly recently, a couple of years ago, I was walking past some workmen who were mending a wall and I overheard one of them say to the other, are we using the Oxford ratio? So I just turned around and zapped back and said, oh, (laughs) what's the Oxford ratio? And it it was a ratio of how you mix cement to link Cotswold stone and it was called the Oxford ratio because it's been used on most old Oxford. Anyway, so that idea of ratios being contextual and something seems to me to be more usefully connected to the word instrument than just procedures. Um, Another kind of understanding is knowing how the thing that you're learning Connects mathematical ideas, mathematical elements, and objects. Um, that could be called covariation if it's a mathematical relation. Seems to relate a bit to what Skemp called relational, but is more purely mathematical than that. The implications of those relationships that are in the mathematics seem important. Um, in, uh, in, uh, cognitive load theory, it's, it's the interacting elements. What are the interacting elements and how do they interact? Um, what are the underlying structures? What are the generalities? How can I transform those? Uh, How can I, you know, write them in a different way so that I can, do I recognise them when they're written in a different form? And the fifth one, if you're keeping count, because I might have actually given you six, um, is uh, overcoming the inherent obstacles. Because there are inherent obstacles of mathematics, moving from additive to multiplicative reasoning. So, you know, at what point do you understand the multiplicative reasoning? is not just repeated addition, but, but other things. Um, another, another example of an obstacle which comes up through a symbol system which I've come up against recently is um, children not children thinking that the second, second decimal place is the tenths. Hmm. Because the second place value going to the left of the decimal point, the tens. So the second value going to the right must be the tenths. And, you know, it just feels so obvious when you, when you see it, when you keep probing and find these things. So that that is probably an obstacle that needs to be overcome as part of understanding. And there's been quite a bit of writing about this, not just symbol obstacles, but epistemological obstacles where your thinking has to be reconstructed in order to deal with a new bit of maths. Um, So so thinking from the point of view of what you say to teachers about understanding and noticing that these things have come from teachers in the first place, there are five or six different kinds of understanding and some of them can show, be shown up in testing and some of them cannot adequately be shown up in testing.
0: Um, on, on that, Chris, do, do you have anything you want to respond uh, to, to Anne on that? Because I've just got a couple of points myself but I'll, I'll let you go first.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I guess there's a, a couple of things. One, I've noticed a few times now. And you, the first time you did it was early on. It's when you talk about the symbol system and you talk about squaring and, you know, what is this little two floating in the air? I just want to point out that I love that because I think that's often um, shied away from this attending to what are the sensory stimuli you're being provided right now. Because obviously the symbol system all speaks to a deep mathematical meaning and structure. And I, I don't know whether you'd agree with me all the way to this, uh, this far, but... I have often seen and felt myself early in teaching a desire to try to derive, to to talk about these things in terms of their deep meaning rather than just in terms of what is it you are seeing in front of you right now. And then from that point, let's move towards gradually towards this deeper structural meaning. So yeah, it's not just the squared... Uh, symbol you're seeing, you're seeing a tiny two floating up in the air. And that's a bit unusual. Up and to the right, you know, let's look at that. So I, re- I really like that. I really respect that we're talking about uh, mathematical symbols in the beginning, not least because so many of them are, are both arbitrary and sadly unhelpful. Classic case of using a dash symbol to refer to both subtraction and negativity. Um, I agree. Uh, Skemp, I've always found unsatisfying. And I in, in his... Original paper in particular, I felt like he was constructing a false dichotomy, a false binary between understanding and not. That has been very unhelpful. So it's deeply reassuring to hear one of the, the grandees of mathematics education um, have come to the same conclusion 20 years ago. My thinking, there's something valid to my thinking there, which is nice to see and then yeah i find i think the that categorization is really interesting i'd love to think more about it in the future but it, it certainly seems uh, like a helpful categorization in particular i think i really like the distinction between um procedural and useful understanding because one of my greatest frustrations about the way people were talking thinking about instrumental understanding is that it almost made it seem like a bad thing if E.g., you could use Pythagoras' theorem to find the length of a hypotenuse or find the length of a short leg. Um, and yet, you know, that has u- utility. And sometimes at the most basic level, you can answer the question of why you would need to use, why, why do you need to know this stuff? Because well, it allows you to do something or know something or find something from a starting set of information that you otherwise would have no means of doing. Um, or, you know, why differentiate so that i can find the gradient of this function at a given point um there's utility in that it, and and it is a form you know, it's a level of understanding even if it's not a, an extreme form or a deep form of expert understanding and i felt like the language of instrumental versus relational kind of denied that so i i, I like this sort of early split into almost um almost a kind of rote you know, i can do but i know not why and then into a, I can do, and I know why, but it's kind of limited into sort of increasing, um, increasing degrees of, of understanding and connecting things together. There's, yeah, probably something very helpful in all of that, I think
0: okay so we've talked about fluency and understanding i'm just going to go for a bit of a bonus question now that wasn't on my list but just something that strikes me uh, listening to you both now this may be the worst question in, in the world that you've ever heard so feel free to dismiss this if this is nonsense but you often hear teachers making this distinction between fluency and understanding this child's fluent in this but they don't understand this or fluency's got to precede understanding or you develop fluency at the same time of understanding these words have have lots of meanings i think for teachers i just wonder and again feel free to dismiss this but if we just circle back to pythagoras can you imagine what the characteristics of a child may be who would be let's say fluent in pythagoras's theorem but wouldn't have understanding in pythagoras's theorem is that something possible and and that you could picture what what would a child perhaps be displaying who would be fluent but doesn't have understanding or or is that not a helpful distinction
1: I, i i can't imagine what well, that would be, because um, I suppose, I suppose, if you if you gave them lots of right-angled triangles, all in the usual orientation, with the right angle on the right, because otherwise it's a left angle, isn't it? With the right <laughs> angle on the right, and and some measurements, and ask them how long the hypotenuse is. And and, or maybe have the hypotenuse on one of the sides and ask them what the other side is, that they would be able to churn that out. Um, As soon as you start reorientating that triangle or nesting it in some more complicated diagram or something, you've got to have some sort of understanding of what it does. You've got to move to the understanding of usefulness. So, so I can't agree? imagine
0: oh, sorry, sorry, Anne, no, sorry, sorry. No, sorry. I'm just repeating myself. Uh, mm. How about you Chris? Can you picture a child who would be fluent but doesn't have understanding?
2: Probably not because of the bit like I answered at the start, because of this continuum issue. So even in that example, um, they at least at the very least understand that in that very 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 narrow set of conditions there is a thing that they can do which will lead to a correct response to the question you posed, which is what is the length of the hypotenuse um but of course it is an extraordinarily limited form of understanding uh, not very many people would be would be satisfied with with that as as the uh the end result of your study of Pythagoras theorem um and I think that's maybe where a lot of people look at it and say, well, they don't really get it. They don't really understand Pythagoras' theorem. And then we get into this, this problem of, um, well, the word understand is, is poorly defined. And what you really probably mean is you want them to better understand it, deeper understand it, understand more of it, be able to you know, take all these differing situations and be able to apply it and, and so on and so forth. So I think it's down to uh, poor... Poor definition of the word understanding and poor agreement in how the community uses the word understanding at this point.
0: Okay, let me let me dig. I'm going to go for one more attempt to dig a little bit deeper into this, only because this is it, it came up in Colin Foster's keynote for the MA, and it often comes up in conversation. So let me try one more thing. But again, feel free to dismiss it if this is nonsense. Let's picture a child. Uh, let's say the year eleven they can do everything you could imagine that they would need to do with Pythagoras in terms of the GCSE. So they can answer every Pythagoras question. They can do 3D Pythagoras. They can, any triangle, any orientation, they can do it. You can give them a triangle that doesn't require Pythagoras and they spot it a mile away. That's not Pythagoras and all this kind of stuff. But you say to them, why does Pythagoras' theorem work? And they go, I have no idea. Is, is that a child who's fluent but doesn't have an understanding or is, is, is that something in between? So they can completely apply it left, right and centre, but they have no idea what they're doing or why they're doing it. What about that, Anne?
1: Um, well, it, it was like Chris said at the very beginning of this exploration of understanding. Understanding continues. Understanding unfolds. Understanding is a continuum. Um, what is the context in which... You want them to know why it works. Um, it's 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 a developing thing. I wouldn't say you understand it or you don't understand it. You've you've reminded me of a lesson I was in once, where the teacher, uh, it was a sixth form lesson. there were sixth, and they were all sitting at computers, and they were. Supposed to be looking at sine curves and cosine curves and talking about what's the same what's different that sort of thing and the two people who were nearest me were making very heavy weather of this and they were also chatting about something else at the same time so i thought i would start asking them um what what do you know about sine and cosine and they said oh well we've done that at gcse (laughs) we don't know why we've got to do it again i said well what are these graphs showing you i i don't know but we did it at gcse and it was as if gcse had shut up shut the doors i I did the trick questions i got the grade that's satisfactorily enough to let me go on and do a level stop asking me about (laughs) and cause it's a bit like that isn't it
0: that's good. I like yeah. that. I like that. And uh, anything to add, Chris, before we move on from understanding? I'm sure we'll circle back to it in some form or other, but anything specific you want to add?
2: Yeah, I think that that's an example is a good case for why, as Anne said, you know, you need this. Why are you doing it? Why are you learning this sex thing? You need the headache of the sex thing for really everybody else, but or something uh, that, that motivates you to learn more. Um, I mean, you you posed the question, but what if you ask them why does it work and they have no idea? You know, there's that lack of understanding? Again I it's the appeal to the continuum to say no, it's not lack of understanding, but it, arguably that's not a very good question either. Um, my favorite video of this is if you you can search it on YouTube, it's about five minutes long. It's you have to search for Richard Feynman and magnetism. And then the video is actually not at all about magnetism. I might have we might have even talked about this before, Craig, but you know, that they um the interviewer is asking him, you know, the thing you feel when you put two magnets together, you know, well, what is that? And Feynman says something like, "Oh, well, you know, that's, that's magnetism, that's the magnetic force you're feeling. And the interviewer is like, yeah, of course, it, but you know, but, but why? Why do they push away from each other in that way? <laughs> and Feynman's just stumped for a few seconds, like, uh, because of magnetism. And then <laughs> he was like, well, like, why are you, you know, you're like, I think it's a perfectly reasonable question that I'm asking. But yeah, you know, it's it's perfectly of course it's a reasonable question, but you have to have some, which I guess it is some like framework within which an answer to you is going to be satisfactory because there's never an end to a why question. So um, you know, I tell you, it's why did. Why is somebody in the, why is somebody in the hospital? Well, it's because she broke a hip. Well, why did she break a hip? Well, she slipped on ice. Well, why did she slip on ice? Well, because when you put your foot down on ice, it sort of lowers the melting point. You get a thin layer of water. So in this way, there's a point at which some people will be satisfied, and otherwise, you can be that kid in the supermarket who just learns that asking why, why, why is a brilliant way of winding up their parents. And mm-hmm. um, in some ways, there's well, maths is oh, very unique in this way. I didn't that. Get that. Almost like there is an endpoint, which is you would formulate this proof that shows that the Pythagorean, tree, uh, Pythagorean theorem is always true. Um, but is even that answering the question why, or is it just is it just satisfying uh, your sense that it, you know, what you have been told about the theorem is true, that it must always be true in all conditions, because some sort of uh, axioms have been built upon, and and then you know, and so forth. It, it provides this proof, but. So, I I think the why questions I think we have to be very careful with. There are there are almost like a it's a very dangerous question to ask if you don't truly understand why you're asking it or what you're hoping to to elicit from it or the framework within which you're expecting a particular kind of response in that particular instance. Fascinating. If
1: you if you um, offered them a tennis ball and drew uh, the uh, equator of the tennis ball and constructed a right angle from that and joined the a, the top of that line wherever you wanted it to be to some other point so that you got something that was in tennis ball terms a right angle triangle but Pythagoras was not going to work then mm. it would be quite a useful thing to ask it would open up a whole world of contemplating what's true in two dimensions that isn't true uh, on every
0: surface interesting interesting right okay so we're going to move on to the fourth question on my list and a bit of a curveball question this and again feel free to relate this to uh, Pythagoras or just as a standalone whatever you want I'm coming to Anne first on this um, I wonder Anne please could you tell us about one of your favorite either math resources or activities or tasks and, and why do you like it <laughs>
1: Depends what I'm wanting to do, what's my favourite. I'm not sure that I really have favourites. I mean, you know that at the moment, Don Stewart's um, median blog is probably my favourite because I'm getting a great deal of satisfaction from working on his tasks and from sort of uncovering the thinking that he's done behind them and the sort of coming at mathematical ideas from the side, um, it, but in a way that is still developmental. I'm just absolutely loving spending time with his with his tasks. Um, but that's favorite for me to rethink some central concepts in school, school curriculum. Um, so I like. I like tasks. I make the distinction between task and activity. Activity is what happens as a result of a task. A task is just what you're asked to do, what you're offered with. Um, And uh, I like tasks that um, endlessly open up directions of inquiry. Um, There was uh, something that. Derek Ball offered us at the ATM conference that looked on the face of it as something very simple, which happened to be about right-angled triangles, right-angled triangles on Greece, um, starting with three along and two up and doing various things to it, that then led on to something called Eudoxus Ladder, which you can look up on Google and see what it is. And the connection, I thought, well, what is the connection? What is the connection? And it was so intriguing that I I had a little go at it every now and then to think, what on earth is he seeing as the connection? I didn't want him to tell me. I really didn't want him to tell me. Um, and, uh, yeah, he hasn't told me. But you, you sort of come back to it and come back to it. And then one day you come back to it from a different direction and... Psh, Oh, I can see exactly mm. what, what it's got to do with Eudoxus's, Eudoxus' ladder. I can see exactly that. Um, and there's something, that's something about uh, an understanding, which I haven't gotten my list of understandings, which is um, the way that the pieces of a jigsaw that you've put together one way in your mind can come apart and rearrange themselves. Mm and give you fresh insight um, that doesn't appear to be, this is one of the problems I have with cognitive load theory. It It doesn't appear to be problematic in the sense of working memory and these things. It doesn't appear to be problematic. It comes as an insight. Now, of course, it wouldn't come if you hadn't done quite a bit of work on it. But it's not to do with the schema that you've built up. It isn't that. It's something else that the mind does, which allows things to fall into place in different ways. And it happens in mathematics. It happens in crosswords. It happens cryptic crosswords. It happens in chess puzzles. There's a lot of places where that kind of experience is very common which is, I don't think explained by cognitive science, but might be explained by neuroscience, but you know, nobody's gonna get inside my head and rewire it. So it, it's, it's something that you can accept and, and think about when you're teaching mathematics, do I give my students the opportunity to come back afresh to a bit of mathematics and to see it from a different point mm. of view? You know the, the classic of kids coming up to you in the corridor and saying, "I've suddenly seen the so and so." You know, do you po- do you pose them with those things that they can take away and think about and have insights about? Um, that's an important part of being mathematical. I can't remember what your question was. Oh, resources <laughs> well, you, you, and activities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. I mean, this book that I worked on a long time ago now, Task Design in Mathematics Education, that cost about £600 or something, it was published by Springer, and it's just gone on open access. And I thought yesterday, well, I'll have a look and see if I still like it. <laughs> oh, and and, and I'm, I've been having a whiz through. And there's some wonderful stuff in there. I mean, I can say that because I was only the editor of it. It was 80 people from all over the world. And and uh, I was sort of look, uh, opening it at random and looking at things and thinking, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Oh, I didn't know that was in there.
0: <laughs> so there's
1: a little bit of a plug for that.
0: I we'll put a link to that for in it. the show. The money
1: goes to the, um, the uh, Commission for Maths Instruction, the International Commission.
0: That's great. We'll put a link to that in, in the show notes. I was having a flick through it last night as well. It's big, isn't it? There's no, uh, it's, no, it's no quick read, I'll tell you that much, but it's uh,
2: some good no. stuff in there.
0: Uh, Chris, let me throw it over to you then. Do you have a favourite, a task, resource or activity?
2: There's no royal road to geometry is what that, uh, that book just made me think of. Uh, favourite, task or activity? Um, okay, do you have a favourite You anything? Know, narrowing all the things that you... I appreciate that, only one, Not especially. I have a latest that I've started talking about, which comes at this from a very, very different direction. Um, in some ways, maybe seems more mundane, because it isn't the sort of classic thing of, what I, I've seen as the classic thing of interesting problems that make you um, rethink mathematics, or make you sort of, all that can open up endlessly. Um, and that's a little bit because, again, I tend to come at this from the perspective not of how can i um my my starting point in the classroom is less how can i generate all of this independent thinking and and promote children having their own ideas i tend to think first and foremost how can i guarantee that they'll understand this really standard mundane bit of mathematics in in the beginning in a way that i want them to because again my experience in my classroom and in so many others has been um of so many children failing in that first hurdle, I feel like what comes later is, this remains inaccessible to them. So I want to overcome this first hurdle. I want them to understand the rudimentary things and to be able to do and to be fluent. From there, we can move forwards, I hope. So um, my favorite example of this recently um, was something I'd seen in, again, Engelmann, and it was about factoring a, a single, factoring into a single bracket. And if we take this uh, idea that I talked about previously with simultaneous equations about atomizing, looking at what all the different sort of atoms are once you've broken it all out, all the different pieces, I now feel like the most um, satisfying and exhilarating times that this is done, you look at that list of, of elements, and there's one piece that I'm now describing as a, almost like plutonium. This is where all the power is. This is the thing that makes you rethink the teaching of this subject in a way you hadn't before. For simultaneous equations, for me, it was probably the atom that was adding and subtracting equations. Up until that point, um, I'd only ever conceived of adding and subtracting equations as like a step in the process of solving simultaneous equations and when you do it you eliminate a variable i've never really considered that you like, equations are just mathematical objects that you can do the same kind of arithmetic to that you did with numbers in primary school you can add them you can subtract them you can multiply divide it's meaningful and the results at the end um show that you've maintained the the the, the, the equality relationship you haven't broken it um, and in this case, for factorising into a single bracket, Engelman did a thing that I would have been too scared to do. But when I saw it, I thought it was brilliant and turned this, again, this topic that so many kids struggle with all the time into a topic that I became confident even some of the weakest um, children in school would be successful in. Um, so for background, the ways I've seen this being taught in the past have ranged from um what asking the question what is the biggest number that can divide into both of these terms and then um and then either it's okay write that down outside the bracket what do you need to multiply by to make those two numbers that's one version another version um asks you to do the division divide each of these by that number what have you got left Uh, another one asks you to split the terms into their prime factor product and then you look for what's common and then um, that becomes your um common factor that you take outside the bracket and then what's left is simplified inside the bracket and more more like a step-by-step process that you can teach but um because you don't have to you have to work out the highest common factor first but um many more steps to it and a bit more confusing and complicated. One that um that Penny used to go for my mentor was just before this was, um, you're looking at it now and it's been expanded. Before that, it was in a bracket. What was it when it was in the bracket? And it's an interesting prompt that she was giving there to kids who I would say had struggled historically, but actually could probably do everything and it's just you a know, culmination of poor behavior in schools and lots of disruption is what means that they've been struggling maths. Like Intellectually, they're more than capable. And Posing that question, they'd obviously seen so many of the standard um numbers in brackets that you'd get because it's just the same questions repeated because there's a limit to how difficult arithmetically the exam papers will make it and they were good enough that they could see the patterns and they just sort of brute forced it in their head and had a guess at what it might be and then waited to be told it was right or wrong Uh, so those are the four methods i've seen historically this one was entirely different um ultimately it starts with the the instruction, here's it's the binomial, we're gonna put it into a a bracket. It'll start with instruction like, take seven out as a factor. And so straight away, you know that it's gonna be the number seven that sits outside the bracket. You don't have to do that bit of thinking for yourself. But now if you do that, if you would have multiplied out, it's not equivalent to what you started with, so it needs a little bit extra. And to that point about really straightforward, looking at the surface features to start with what you do next is you you draw a line underneath each term and you again write a 7. Now at the lowest level of understanding you just repeat that set of steps every time take 28 out as a factor 28 here line line 28 28 take 34x out as a factor 34x here line line 34x here and here and you can be confident that it's always going to be correct but this is right at the beginning of that understanding continuum and nobody would be satisfied with that so you get into interesting questions like what comes next. and There's something around um, maybe showing that it is correct, so having to expand it in some way through some serious steps to get back to what you started with. and Maybe there's more interesting uh, things people could do with that. Um, but just in terms of the next step of a cognitive work that they have to do themselves, I, I wouldn't even, I'd say, avoid asking them to simplify the fractions if they can. So at this point, you don't simplify fractions. That's a different atom. Later on, you might bring simplifying fractions in and give them that instruction as well. Later on, you're no longer going to tell them what to take out as a factor. Instead, you are going to um, ask them to basically go through a process to find, identify the factors or the highest common factor and make a decision to take out the highest common factor using the exact same process as seen previously. And then maybe you, um, you simplify and yeah, you end up with, you finally get to um, what you probably imagined at the beginning, which is by factorize, you're now going to take out the highest common factor and, and simplify. And you know, part of me asks, is that legitimate? Can you take seven out of, as a factor if it's not actually a common factor? I'm uncertain around the language, But I do know that as an idea it's valid because you you do end up with an equivalent expression. It's also an important step in proof by induction in further mathematics. And actually when you're first instructed to do that, it feels really strange. You feel like I'm not allowed to do that, I I can only take common factors outside the bracket. And of course that's not true. So there is something still in the way that we've been teaching. Um, factorizing into a single bracket that narrows down the range of what's possible mathematically um, and if we allow for that increased range of what's possible mathematically we discover that actually this first step this this atom of plutonium as i'm calling it is enormously powerful in that it enables every child regardless of where they're at the moment to be able to do this thing in the first instance successfully uh, to move beyond it we do get back into uh, you know focus on being able to list factors, identify common factors, find the highest common factor, which I guess speaks back to um, a point I made earlier about ideally you want those atoms to be fluent already and if they're not why on earth are you trying to ask students to factorize into a bracket? But of course we know many Many teachers will just structurally find themselves in a position where they are asked to. So I found that this idea of splitting it out into these particular atoms, and in particular having a new atom which I'd never considered before of, gosh, I can give you the instruction of what number to take outside the bracket, and, and now what you have to do is, is incredibly straightforward um, as a way in. I found that really powerful um, and really exciting. But you know, I'd be very interested to hear Anne's thoughts on that because I know some people don't like it at first because it does attend to surface features quite
0: directly. Well, just, just before I, I set you up to respond on, we're coming on to next talking about Engelman in particular with links to variation theory. So feel free to kind of preempt that question or take it however you want. But um, any any responses to Chris's uh, Chris's uh, explanation there?
1: Well, um, I think it's really uh, interesting that um, the way that Engelman describes the uh, learning in terms of the same way that Martin describes learning which was a similar way to the way that Zoltan Dinesh described learning and, and possibly Aristotle as well that, that it's something about um, contrast and sameness and difference and what's okay and what's not okay. What, what um, I, I like very much the uh, descriptions I've read of the die star project because the context for that was so sensitive to the social and nutritional and psychological and emotional needs of the children that he was teaching that there's something really rather beautiful about um you know, they had food, they had dental care, they had all sorts of things. The small groups, working with small groups, the absolute joy that they show in their learning because they trust him and because they're safe. And and all that is, is just lovely. When, when it becomes... Something therefore that you can use those teaching principles for all classes, all ages, also all all mathematical topics. I back off and I think, well, hang on, what is this about? Because um, there's got to be a build-up of trust. But for me, the social and emotional trust in the teacher isn't isn't enough. They've got that. I think that if you're not if you're not trusting them to become mathematical thinkers, there's something missing because you could be building up a dependency. I am always going to give you the next little bit that you need. Mm. Now, Chris, in the previous contrast a, a podcast, this is not a criticism, by the way, thinking about how you enable children who've had a fractured education and possibly, you know, quite a disadvantaged home environment to get their GCSE, then that's the kind of thing that you that you do. You know, I'm going to give you this little bit. I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to make sure that you can do it. Um, but you've got to depend on me. But ideally, in my thinking, you actually need... Um, to develop their independence as thinkers and to be not always dependent on you feeding them the right little bits. Now, that isn't what you asked me. You asked me about how that relates, how Engelman relates to variation um, theory. Engelman is using variation theory. I mean, he wouldn't call it that with a capital V, a capital T. But the whole point of variation is that is what is all around us we learn by sameness and difference so we structure our teaching so that learners will come into an understanding of what's the same and what's different in mathematical ideas this is what attracted me about variation theory in the first place that it just seemed to me to be so much like mathematics (laughs) in the way that it describes um knowing the way that we come about it as well as everything in the rest of the world because uh, he, he applies it to all kinds of learning, all kinds of subjects. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fact about how we learn. And you know, what, what's there not to like? What is there not to like is what is the task for the learner. And if it's only to be fed these little bits and to do them and to be told when and how to put them together then that's not good enough as a form of education. You might as well program, write some program for a robot to do it. And indeed there have been. There is a a wonderful study done by someone called Edmund Firth, who um, taught a computer to read uh, a year one algebra, university algebra textbook and answer all the questions. It could do it because it was just a question of moving things around in the right place in the right order. So where's the learner in all this? But you see, the, talking about these little bits building up, the the Shanghai curriculum does that. But the bits that you're going to need later are trickled in earlier so that you know you know what? how you, you're taken through the build-up of these but the individual lessons are, are not totally teacher dependent children's responses and children's ideas are, are used um by the way i think it's true still true to say that the curriculum in china is reviewed at least every 10 years so I presume that our curriculum is being reviewed because it's about ten years. This is a joke, of course, <laughs> but um, but it really it really ought to be, oughtn't it? Because it's uh, there are so many things about it that are amenable to mangling mm. rather than amenable to mathematical understanding
0: like that i like that and like um, well let's stick then chris on on this this notion of engelman and variation theory because th- this is this, this is something when i spoke to um christian bokov on, on the podcast and i've not released the episode just yet this was something he particularly wanted to to delve into with you two and again whenever i think i need to know something about variation theory and my first thought whenever i think i need to know something about Engelmann, you're my first thought so it strikes me that if you were to ask ask just somebody who has a passing knowledge of them, they, they would see these as, as potentially quite different, uh, well, different approaches, different ideas. But as Anne's alluded to already, there's there's a lot of similarity going on there. What, what's your take, Chris?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. There's a tremendous amount that I can add, actually. I, I can add a, a, maybe a bit. I mean, my reading on variation theory is somewhat limited. I read um, Lie 2012, Low 2012, and Huang and Lee 2017, and I read all them several years ago. Um, and I remember at the time, reading them and thinking, broadly speaking, it looks like this is already what Engelman's covering. It's definitely what's in there. But also, as Anne said, Engelman, as far as I'm aware of variation theory, I've only ever seen it applied to mathematics teaching alone. Very specialist. So you can maybe dive into the literature there and see things that are uh, very specific to a mathematics context. Um, <clears throat> a little bit extra I got from one of the papers was... I remember it gave three different categories of things you could vary and it was something like you can keep the problem solving method the same but vary the starting conditions and, and therefore the, the, end, the end result or you could keep the starting and end condition the same but vary the, um, the, the procedure or the method that is used to get from A to B and I forget the third it might have been varying the sort of conceptualization of or the way that uh, the representation for, for certain concepts as well. I mean, it's good. That's like really specific to, to mathematics. But otherwise, yeah, I think um, they're, they're, they're basically the same thing, and I agree that Engelman would never call it that. There's a lot of stuff that Engelman does, which is talked about elsewhere, but he would never use the same language. He's largely doing his own thing, it seems. Um, yeah. I think that that's really all there is to say on variation theory. Um, but I mean, it can speak to the idea about whether or not within this frame, I mean, I agree with everything about, you know, we learn in terms of sameness and difference. Engelman's got a great book entitled um, Could John Stuart Mill Have Saved Our Schools? And in that he hypothesises that um, Mill's ideas about uh, logic and reason that were applied to the scientific resolution, uh, revolution and elsewhere, um, he, he himself did not think they applied to education. But Engelmann and Carnine think that well they've ended up discovering the exact same principles again by a different name, and had they been applied to education four centuries earlier—this uh, thing's four, not two—four centuries earlier, um, that our education system today would be much different. So I guess there is this idea of what's that you raised know, and what is negative in this uh, in this learning environment. Are you and importantly? Are you training students to believe that they are um, hopeless without their teacher present? That's a really interesting one. Um, So I would say my greatest concern in thinking about being there for people throughout their school up to A-level education and uh, focusing on this method in particular is that they... I, I believe they could get the highest grades in their exam. I believe that they will leave with at the high end of the understanding scale. So I don't think, say at Upland, Even, where we do have a marketing position around um, securing top grades, even there in our course design, we don't focus exclusively on what it takes to get all the marks in the exam paper. We put a great deal of time, effort, research and thinking into... And what does it take for you to be satisfied by this and to understand this and to be able to think about it and connect it to lots of different ideas. And we've got um, a series of um, videos coming out soon, actually, on the science of learning and how we apply it, which speaks towards us a little bit at the end. Um, And yet take those people still and put them in the university context and to what extent will they flourish? or to what extent will they see themselves as people who can have independent ideas that are valid? And what I keep coming back to with this in my head is Dan Mayer's video, uh, the one where he like strips apart a textbook and says, let's not give you all the information. And my experience in the world of management consulting at that point, I have a feeling we've maybe talked about this before Craig, but the question that always stuck in my head was, if you apply to be a management consultant somewhere like Accenture, what they do or did a decade ago was gave you four sheets of paper, asked you to read it, and then said, "Right, what do you think are the problems facing this company right now? Which one would you prioritise? What solutions might you come up with?" And those four pages of information, one of them is like a news article, that gives you the context of the business, and the other three are interviews with people who work there or customers and like that. If you applied to somewhere like McKinsey, Bain, BCG very, very different. They would ask a question like this one that stuck in my head. Um, our client is an iron mining company and they've just purchased a piece of iron rich land in Australia. I want you to tell me whether they should mine it. In giving your answer, please tell me the break-even point, the cost per ton of mining the ore and the impact on the global economy. And I read this and this was apparently a case study question. You'd get an interview and you don't need a big business background. And I was just like, how, uh, how am I supposed to answer that? I have no idea. I have no knowledge about this. And what you were supposed to do, and I eventually learned how to do, is ask the right questions. Well, okay, what is the cost going to be of what are the upfront costs going to be of establishing the equipment? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you this. With that, can you work it out? Oh, yeah, I can. It says, just... now I'm thinking about Dan Mayer's video. And I actually did this with my year eight top set one time in my first year of teaching. I just gave them this question, which was um, a bucket's filling with water. Tell me how long it'll take for it to be filled. And suddenly they have to ask their own questions. Like uh, they have to ask questions like they might not consider. Yeah, they've, they've got to think. What questions could I ask? Like, um, ask like, is there a hole in the bucket? Is there any water exiting the bucket? Was there any water in the bucket to begin with? What's the volume of the bucket? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll tell you it has this uh, these dimensions. Can you work it out? What's the flow rate of the water into the bucket, etc. And then they did the thing which kids will do and start getting really, really silly, like, you know, are there any aliens interfering with the bucket filling process right now? And it became a contest and you can ask the silliest question. So now you're getting into something around, you know, the environment and the classroom sort of culture and behavior management, et cetera. But also the challenge with that, and the reason I didn't do it a lot, even though I loved it, and I think we had a lot of fun, is very difficult to manage 30 people coming up with three or four questions and trying to respond to their questions and trying to um trying to like say whether or not their questions are valid or, or, or whatever. And maybe this is what um, Andrew Blair with inquiry learning and the, the cards and things is trying to overcome to manage that in, environment in a, a classroom of 30. But there, there's certainly a challenge there. And then the final check, tra- but there's also certainly something of value there. So now the final question is back to this point about time constraint and s- system constraint how do you balance um trying to use as much of your time as possible in a way to make sure you learn as much that can be learned in in this i'll give you the next bit and i will generate get you to be cognitively generative and get you to think about this and i will take you far from start to end or the further end on this understanding continuum with this additional thing of how do you get to learn for yourself that you can have your own thoughts and ideas about this that they can have valid that it's okay for them to be wrong to be comfortable making mistakes to be alright making conjectures and putting things out there how do we balance the time commitment to all of these things because the one thing i'm not going to buy into at this point is what i call the have your cake and eat it approach which is the belief that you can dedicate all time to that latter environment and through it also get all of the, the fluency and the understanding and the capability with the um, the, the, the basic mathematical ideas. i have yet to be convinced that that's feasible. So it is either all, and you've got to apportion a certain amount of time within a certain structure to each of them. That's so I'm currently seeing it.
0: Can I ask you a quick question, Chris, before I throw back over to Anne, if, if that's okay? Um, one thing that I often think when I hear you speak, whether it's we're having a conversation on the podcast or at a conference that we're both at or I'm listening to you speak, is I often wonder, well, when you describe um, teaching using Engelman's principles, and I thought that uh, example using the factorization was, was fascinating. Are, are you using that approach primarily, obviously you believe it works and stuff, but are you using, are you using it primarily because of the constraints you spoke about? That you've got one teacher and 30 kids. If you were doing it just one-to-one, if you were doing some tuition and you were teaching, say, factorizing, would you be doing it the same way or are you using it primarily because of the situation that the teachers find themselves in? I don't know if that question makes sense.
2: It's a brilliant question. It's a, it's such an important question. And the answer is yes and no, and both and, <laughs> and everything in between. It, it dramatically changes the, the context you're in, right? So yeah, you've, you've, you're you probably going to do something different, but also, so to begin with, I would do a lot of it the same because I do think it's it's very powerful and very valuable. You're able to get much more feedback much more quickly in a one-on-one setting uh, and there is this idea with the expertise reversal effect I can't remember if there's a question about it later I think there might be um, and you know that's important in a class with 30 it's both hard to judge where all 30 are and make sense of that and do something that work that takes that into consideration when you have only one person in front of you you can probably uh, do a better assessment of that and absolutely um, the the uh, what you will do should change depending upon uh, the, the person's prior knowledge. And I mean, actually, one of like, the next steps for Upland is we have started creating, we've got nearly a full suite of STEM-related available courses right now, and we've created all of them over three and a half, four years um, by thinking about a student who's in year 12 and they've got like a grade C or maybe a four or five in new money Uh, but they were allowed onto an A-level course because those people exist. And they want to do well, but they're they're starting from the lowest possible uh, position. Build the material that works for them and guarantees them an A-star, and they love it, and they understand loads by the end. Um, Now, where we're at now is we're finding students in that position or somewhere towards that end, absolutely love what we've created the feedback we're given is is enormously positive it's like they've discovered something they didn't believe could possibly exist for them but we're also getting feedback from some students who are saying this is too slow i don't enjoy this um this is too basic it's too rudimentary so now what you've got to think about is what about the student who's on track for an a and it's halfway through year 13 or something um for us the next step is now building out material that is better suited to them where they've got loads more Prior knowledge, and they're looking for things that help them build on top of what they already have faster, or, um, or work to, to move faster. Uh, as, as one example, so though you do need to vary depending upon the individual student and their uh, background, and you can do that much more easily, I think, in a one-to-one setting than you can do within the constraints of the classroom. But I would still certainly use all of these ideas and maybe move faster through sequences or start jumping steps depending on who I've got in front of me. Um, and if we can do that, maybe that more easily frees up time as well to start doing some of these things, which I said are challenging to manage again in a, in a room with 30 people. Really easy to manage when it's one person in front of you. Here's an inter- inter- interesting question. It doesn't seem interesting, but it is. If I with water, tell me how long it takes. Um, you can manage that so easily in the one on one setting. So absolutely, context changes things.
0: Got it. Uh, let me Before we move on, I'll let me throw over to you, just in case there's anything you wanted to pick up on from what Chris had been saying
1: um well I found myself thinking about a primary school that I know of. It's in quite a disadvantaged area and they've decided to make maths a big priority. They make a sort of disproportionate investment in maths in their school. Um, and they have um, they have um, quite an active, NCETM type mastery approach to their maths lessons but they also have theme explorations in which a lot of maths happens and they're reporting that um, when when a problem arises in whatever it is they're doing in their theme um, that the children are perfectly able to say I don't know how to work out so and so and to use mathematics as a, as a tool um, before any real experience of it, or, or to even construct it themselves. One that they found they were constructing themselves was a sort of notion of ratio because they wanted to build a model aeroplane for something. They, they, they needed the idea of ratio and they were sort of expressing it. And the teachers were saying, well, yes, that's, that's how we do it. Now, this is how we write it.
0: Mm.
1: So that the symbolising comes when you've already got some idea of the the thing you need to express, the, the reason why you're needing to express it, and to find that there's a bit of mathematics. and And this was year two, year two. Oh. <laughs> so so yes. there were things like that going on in parallel to the more formal mastery type approach that was going on in their maths lessons now i wonder what those students experience is going to be like when they move into secondary school Mm -hmm. um lovely if they could jump straight into the sixth form a level stuff they would have those ways of thinking but meanwhile there's secondary school and and if you if you go for the you can't have your cake and eat it we've got to get through all this stuff approach um, and we're going to do it in this very formal way then all that previous exploration is just going to to vanish and become something nice they did in primary school and it's not going to be carried into the the harder mathematics and that that bothers me and there's more sort of standing back thing, supposing children have not had that experience in primary school. But, you know, we know that children start out as fairly curious creatures. And if that's not harnessed in mathematics and explored in mathematics, exploited in mathematics and developed in mathematics, it's unlikely that they're going to want to continue with mathematics or get much pleasure and joy out of mathematics, so um, I, I think cake is, is is not have your cake and eat it. That's the wrong metaphor. It's cake that is <laughs> is the wrong the wrong metaphor. Um, it's uh, you can't you you can't separate them. In mathematics, is all those things that tools that we use to understand what goes on around us. And the mathematics that is formalised and expressed in symbols is the mathematics that is useful to us in those contexts, as well as being a thing in itself. And it's getting the balance right between the, this is what's useful in this context, and maths as the thing itself, which I think is sometimes not, not achieved. For example, Um, I was once taken in great pride by somebody in Australia into a lesson that was taught by what was described to me as an expert teacher who was going to teach a problem-based lesson. And as a result of observing that lesson, I wrote an article called Then What? as one word. There were no then-whats in that lesson. There were shared... Shared methods of exploring this, exploring that, exploring this, exploring that. And I assumed that there would be a next lesson in which these different things were compared, as they do in Japanese, typical Japanese lesson study, where the different ways of solving a problem are compared. And there is very definitely a then what. And the then what has been planned for by the teacher. And the tasks have been chosen because there's a then what. But in this particular lesson, there was no then what. And that was the last lesson of the half term or something. There wasn't going to be a then what. And and that's what I think, where I think the difficulty, um, it's a difficulty, but it's, it's not insurmountable because they surmount it in Japan. So it's not insurmountable. Okay, so we've done five
0: of the big eight questions, three to go. So this one's coming to you, Anne, and I'm fascinated by both your takes on this, actually, because this is something that I found particularly enlightening when I first started engaging with educational research, and I found it a really useful distinction, but I know it's something that lots of people don't agree with and find it quite unhelpful. So my question to you, Anne, is, is the distinction between novice and expert a useful one? If not, why not? And if so, how might we tell if a student has moved from being a novice to an expert?
1: I don't find it useful at all. I was you hoping know you'd say that. that. <laughs> I, I had lots of discussions with um, with Uha when Uha Chen when we were writing a paper for mathematics teaching about this, as um, so I couldn't I couldn't get at what the cognitive load people mean by novice. I just couldn't get at it. I couldn't imagine having a learner sitting there in front of me who was such a novice at whatever it was I was going to teach them that I had to give them worked examples and that was how they were going to learn about it. Um, Added to that, I couldn't imagine what the... Knowledge was what the mathematics was that could be learnt in that way. Particularly if you take my different layers of what understanding is about. You know, are we talking about somebody who really doesn't know and has not seen these symbols before, and has not seen these numbers before, and and has not seen them put together in this way before, and has not seen, you know, if if. If we're doing that, you move this over here. You know, it's like change the side, change the sign. You know, if I'm teaching them change the side, change the sign, then OK. You know, if they don't know what an equation is <laughs> or if they're not interested in what an equation is or they're not fluent in what an equation is, then change the side, change the sign. Why would I, why would I do that knowing full well that can be misapplied in all kinds of inappropriate contexts. Um, and and I, I did I think eventually we got to you know a novice is someone who has no prior knowledge of this procedure okay if they are if they have no understanding to bring to that, No sort of previous expertise, if you like, I'm putting that in inverted commas. No previous expertise that is relevant. Why am I teaching them this? In mathematics, everything builds on on something that's gone before. Nobody is a novice. If they are a novice, there's something wrong with your scheme of work. Something seriously wrong with your scheme of work. If they're such a novice that there's nothing that you can take and build on, there's no point in your exposition of a working through at which you can turn to them and say, now, what do you think I might do to this? What am I, you know, it's an equation. What sort of things can I do with equations? How can you read the equation? What is the equation telling me? If if it's telling me this, what else do we know? If you can't turn to the kids, and, you know, I'm assuming that you're writing on a board very old-fashioned with your back to the kid. If you can't turn to them and say, what can we do, then you're probably doing something really not very helpful. So um, so look at the research about novice expert. Of course, it does make sense because very often the teaching situation, if some artificial task that is not related to any knowledge that they have. But then when you're teaching maths, that's never the case. So I can't answer your other questions about um, how can we tell if a student has moved from one to being the other for the reasons that we've already said, but also for that particular reason.
0: That's fascinating. Thanks, Anne. Now, Chris Bolton, I'm going to be really annoyed at you if you also agree with Anne that uh, they're useful, uh, that they're, they're, they're useless. So we me hear. Uh, oh, follow... clash of the <laughs> This is going to be the Twitter trail, this, whatever comes out your mouth next. So, uh, Chris, <laughs> is the distinction between novice and an experts a useful one?
2: Yeah, I was going to say yes, and I still think the answer is kind of yes, but maybe I'll modify it to, is it a meaningful one? Because it is a meaningful one, I believe. Is it useful? Uh, again, that depends a lot about on the context, doesn't it? The context in which it's going to be used. And yeah, you get into this question of can you categorize a learner as a, as a novice or not? Um, so let's try and dig into it a little bit. First of all, what is it and what does it mean? what what was I saying, expertise, expertise, novice expert, what does it mean? Uh, What's the difference? Yeah, it just relates to prior knowledge. Novice is somebody who has less prior knowledge than someone who is an expert. And then to maybe give a concrete example of one of the, the experiments that Anne alluded to, I think this really helps to understand where it's come from and why this observation of the expertise reversal effect has been made except my doorbell's going so I'm going to go off to answer that instead really sorry no. um okay concrete example of what that looks like from the research um so one example might be to hmm. imagine giving somebody a written passage maybe a page long that explains the workings of a car engine and then your alternatives from there onwards are to have that and you've got no associated diagram it's just a written text alternatively you can have that with a diagram on the next page Uh, next alternative your diagram is labeled a b c d e with all the different components and then at the bottom somewhere there's a key that tells you what each of those are next example instead of a key the labels are uh the, the label's directly attached to the diagram, so you don't have to switch between a key and the and the engine. And then the final example, you don't have a page of text anymore. The text that explains the workings of the engine is fully integrated with this diagram of the engine. Now, let's take two people, one who knows nothing at all about the workings of a, the makeup and the workings of a car engine and the second knows something about it or quite a bit about it. They they have some prior knowledge about the workings of car engines. The outcome of you know have they learned about cars? So you you can give them any one of these different uh, treatments and then measure what they've learned at the end. You can measure it in a couple of ways. One way would be tell me everything you know about the workings of car engines half an hour later or even five minutes later. Another might be, which is what um, I'm reading about in Richard Mayer's book in the moment, um, the attempts to build transfer tests. So you start asking questions like, why might the car engine not work? Or um, something else that I've forgotten. But the questions that aren't just repeat what I've just told you about the workings of a car engine, but rather, I'm going to try to get you to apply that now to some other question that we haven't looked at before. So the, the outcomes of this experiment are that If you just have that passage of text, if the um, if a student already knows a lot about car engines, they'll probably read it and be very comfortable with it, and might learn something additional from in between the gaps, stuff they didn't know about previously. That in my mind is very similar to Dan Willingham's point about how um, the best learners are the people who have prior not sorry the best readers are people who already have prior knowledge about the content they're reading about. I think there's a similar similar thing happening there. Um, Whereas if you give them, say, the fully integrated example, where the step-by-step writing about how the engine functions is integrated into some diagram of the car engine, the people who knew nothing at all about car engines in the beginning, they learn loads more from that treatment than just a paragraph of text. And then what's interesting is that apparently the people who already have some or maybe a lot of prior knowledge don't see as big a difference between those two treatment conditions. So what you've got is a situation where um, this integrated diagram with a exa- with written example, you see a large effect for people with low prior knowledge, people who are described as novices, and you don't really see much difference for people who already have quite a bit of prior knowledge. To me, this, this intuitively makes sense. I actually read through some of his, um, his exam- Richard Mayer's examples on this recently. And at the end, he's saying, like, see how difficult this thing is to read. And actually, I was thinking that wasn't that hard to read. And realized it's because I actually already know a bit about what he's describing, like how lightning forms, for example. Um, I already know quite a lot about that. Um, so what's the outcome of this then? And what might you need to do differently in theory? Well, assuming it is harder to produce an integrated diagram, as an example, versus a paragraph of text or give a speech, a lecture as a, as a instructional mode, um, if you're putting in that extra effort and you're working with students who don't need it, then your risk is a lower benefit-to-cost ratio. Uh, you're putting in effort that you don't need to. Um, potentially, worst case scenario, maybe. You would say things in writing that you're not going to have space to fit in to a diagram like that. So maybe you're missing out some of those interesting links that actually the um, the the more expert, the higher prior knowledge student would have benefited from having access to. So you've got this worst case scenario where maybe you're teaching them less than you would have done otherwise, or maybe um, you know somebody could scan the text quickly and, and understand something very quickly, whereas. With a different material you would use, perhaps that slows them down. That's the example I gave earlier, maybe trying to attend to the novice learner means that um, the more expert learner being presented with the same materials is slowed down. So that's the kind of a concrete example done under research conditions. Um, how do they evaluate whether or not the student has is more novice or more expert, has more or less prior knowledge? Really interesting, they can't just ask the student what prior knowledge they have or what they know about things because they're worried that asking them to think about it in those terms will influence the impact of the instruction their measure of the impact of the instructional Mm -hmm. material so they come at it through roundabout ways Um, i've forgotten the questions now i think it's things like i don't know how confident are you in these like eight topics of which maybe one of them is going to be the one we're going to do a thing on and you don't know it yet. So it's it, there's various little sort of questions like that to try to qualitatively assess to get a sense of the student's prior knowledge. But even what I've shared there, while not brilliant, it gives you a sense of how fuzzy that measurement is going to be. It's not like anybody today is in, that I'm aware of anyway is in detail successfully analyzing where somebody sits on a novice to expert uh, spectrum. Um, so I think it is important and I think it can be, I think it is meaningful because we have done research that shows two people in two different conditions will learn differently or to varying amounts, they'll be successful in two different instructional, uh, situations. But now you get to this question of, is it useful? And now it becomes more interesting because in order to be useful, you as a teacher have to be able to make that judgment or assessment of where they might sit on this continuum. You have to understand enough about um, which types of instructional methods are going to be more or less useful in different contexts. And now we're kind of back into a situation where things are so uh, can be so fuzzy that you're probably, as a teacher, just going to rely on your gut judgment, as most teachers probably do most of the time anyway. Um, Maybe the exception to this is some of the things that Mark McCourt talks about where um, he advocates for almost like doing more with uh, mathematical knowledge. I can't recall at all, sorry, Mark, if you're listening, how he says this, but um, maybe getting more into investigative tasks or deeper problem solving tasks with mathematical content that was first studied two years ago. That's the rule of thumb he gives. And um, there, the idea seems to be you've had, hopefully, two years of, of working with and thinking about these ideas in a maybe a somewhat mundane way or procedural way or in a way that's allowed you to develop procedural fluency. Now you should have that down and we're able to think about this in these more expansive and interesting ways. Maybe there's something there in thinking about how maybe you could categorize that as two years on, I'm accrediting you. Dear student, with a certain amount of expertise in this particular area of mathematics, therefore I can engage you in tasks that I wouldn't have felt confident doing two years ago. Uh, so that may be a way that it's it's being applied and and is useful.
0: Okay, let me hand back to Anne for any response to that.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the thinking of it in terms of prior knowledge makes a lot more sense than using the word novice and thinking about. Um, Expertise as something that's relevant to wherever you are at the moment and whatever it is you're hoping to teach is is a a helpful way to think about things. But it's part of looking at whatever it is you're trying to teach and thinking, um, what do I hope that learners are bringing to this? Which would include some prior understanding if we go for the simultaneous equations thing. What is an equation? What does an equation mean? How do you read it? How, how you know, if, when you see that algebraic expression, what do you say to yourself and what do you know about it? Those kinds of things, um, really, really knowing, really identifying those as prerequisites for the thing that you're going to teach and then doing something to find out or to make sure or to rehearse those things that are prerequisites to the thing that you're going to teach. Um, So it's part of that. Whether you you stick the word novice, expert, apprentice, whatever word you want to stick onto it is irrelevant, really. You can call them Easter bunnies once you've done that analysis. Um, Then the expert is not expert. It's the expertise um, that you're assuming when you give them something a couple of years down the line or whenever it is that you hope they will bring forward this sense of whatever they'd learned in the past. Um, so so it's the measuring that, that bothers me. I mean, the, the idea of the car, the, the example of the car engine, I think is irrelevant because nothing that you're learning in school mathematics is as coming from nowhere as, or shouldn't be, as coming from nowhere, as suddenly you're going to learn by a car engine by reading a lump of text. You know, there's, there's there's bad teaching that's got to be described somewhere. The closest thing I can think about it in mathematics is um, what used to happen, but hopefully it doesn't happen quite so much as it used to. When you get to university and you get first year real analysis, And you get given a definition of continuity, which has got all kinds of epsilons and deltas in it, and greater thans and for alls and for sums and all kinds of things in it, symbols that you're not fluent in, about something which actually you do know something about. But it is so heavily hidden in the symbolic world and very often not given examples that are of any use to you. then it feels like something, something coming in from nowhere, from which you'll go, with which you're going to flounder, and we all know that students do flounder in that. But that is, I shouldn't say bad teaching, should I? Because then you'll say what's good teaching. No, you see, I don't see the world, the world in divisions like that. But that is bad teaching, isn't it? Because it's not taking the learner into account and the learner's prior knowledge into account at all. And it takes quite a bit of mental gymnastics to connect that stuff to what you learned about calculus in sixth form.
0: Can I ask you, Anne, um, I've, I've always enjoyed your, well, your take on anything really, but particularly, um I've, I've enjoyed reading your writing on cognitive load theory over the, over the last couple of years. And we had Oh How on the podcast, uh, who spoke about the collaboration with yourself and, and Mike Hollerton. Would it, would it be fair to say that one of your main concerns with cognitive load theory and the kind of the way it gets kind of transferred into the classroom is that it's, it's not particularly suited to mathematics? And the reason I ask this is because what fascinates me is many of the studies do seem to be about maths because maths is quite easy to kind of measure something being right and wrong and so on. You get things like recall of vocabulary pairs and so on, but a lot of the studies do seem to be rooted in maths. But, no, sorry, to take your point, um would it be fair to say that because of this prior knowledge that comes into it and because very, very rarely students are are complete novices, that a lot of the findings from cognitive load theory and a lot of the applications just aren't suitable? Would, would that be fair or have I missed something?
1: Um. That's not quite my view. Um, Cognitive load theory, um, I think, is descriptive. I don't think it's a prescription for teaching. I think it describes and explains some of the phenomena of learners' responses to what they're offered, what Chris was calling stimuli Um, and it makes sense of a lot of the things that we know anyway. Um, We know that that our working memories can be overloaded from our own experience of trying to learn anything or being in any sort of situation. so to have it called something can be relatively helpful, I suppose. Um, to explain some of the problems that people in our classrooms have with what they're offered and how they're offered it, it, it seems fairly useful. But you already know from your experience as a teacher, if you're at all aware and at all interested in your students' learning, you already know that the kinds of problems that they, they have. You might not do anything about it. I mean, board work is still appalling <laughs> yeah. in general. Um, yep. Thank goodness. You know, although I, I I think that the use of smart boards to just show PowerPoints is a waste of technology, but at least having to pre-think and put things on PowerPoint mean that what you show them is a little better organised. But um, that's gone off the point, haven't I? Um, where was I? What was I talking about? Um, cognitive load. But, but it, it was, it was like, sort of like variation theory. Once I started reading about cognitive load theory, I thought, which was ages ago, by the way, in sort of 2003, 2004, um, I thought, yeah, I can see how this is applicable. And actually, within mathematics, we have a lot of the tools that help. Well, I mean, the reason why algebra was developed was because writing out all those relationships in words was just too complicated. You couldn't mm. get track of it. We have so many tools. We have algebra. We have numbers. We have particular layouts. We have uh, diagrams. We have graphs. We have words. We have gestures. We have all those things that um that we can manage it and. And I suppose if teachers find cognitive load theory a good reminder Mm. of what they already know, then it might be helpful to them. If they don't already know it from their own experience, then it's not gonna be helpful because just having a load of technical terms thrown at you, you know, it's more a sort of, oh yes, oh yes, Mm. feeling that I think you should get from it. What is really damaging is when senior leadership teams go trotting around classrooms in subjects that they know nothing about and claiming that the cognitive load was too heavy, mm. diagram, hands, and writing on the screen together, or because there are, you know, whatever, anyway, uh, but, but, the, but the, the, you know, in mathematics, sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes, I mean, I'm going to talk to the uh, ARC plus curriculum plus next week or the week after. And I've got an example there where a teacher in year nine put something up on the board which had ever so many interactive elements, which I understand are one of the measures of cognitive load, ever so many. And the entire lesson was about analysing what that was so that you learn to manage that kind of cognitive load. You learn to manage it, and you manage it mathematically through analysis of what's there, taking parts out and knowing how you can transform them. So, um, so, so that's where I am with, with cognitive load. So it's not quite so cut and dried as, as you suggested. I try very hard, to understand what it it usefully tells teachers and what gets in the way of that. And it's really good that they're doing this work at at Loughborough. It's going to be very interesting. Um, But still, the cognitive load side of things says, no, actually, you know, we are working towards telling people how to teach isn't the language they used, but that was it. And I think, no, no, it's maths teachers who learn how to teach mathematics. And with a bit of luck, they can critically age with information from a variety of places in order to help them do that.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Well, what I'd like you to do, Chris, and again, feel free to pick up on anything that Anne said, but if that kind of brings us nicely to the penultimate question, which is what, if anything, are the most important things for teachers to know and implement from cognitive science research?
2: Um, yeah, there's a couple of things related to this I came to mind in advance. One, like right near the beginning, and, and you talked about how there's this sort of superficial retelling of ideas in the sector and um sam hall recently put me onto a twitter thread by adam boxer where he is uh expressing his frustrations with all of the the, all of the lethal mutations out there right now and everybody's saying you've got to have a knowledge organizer what was his one he picked out was um retrieval practice you've got to have retrieval practice and then people just saying you know I've heard retrieval practice is the thing you got to do it and then people do a starter and they think great I've ticked off retrieval practice and then move on and there isn't the the, the thinking and the reading all the times often as a classroom teacher to do the thinking and the reading to understand why that might be beneficial what the boundary conditions of it might be where it is helpful and where it isn't so if I were just going to pick anything I would say probably retrieval practice and I mentioned the um I mentioned the the videos and the science of learning we're putting out soon from Uplearn. And that's probably the the one thing we've pulled out and put front and center is retrieval practice, um, partly because it guards against what I'm calling the, the recognition trap, you know, that, that sense of mm-hmm. I look at something and because I recognize it, I think I know it. And at a later point when you might need it, whether that's needed for an exam or need it to make sense of some future. Um, some future idea or to notice some pattern, you actually can't. So um yeah, if I had to pick out anything it'd be that but I mean very wary of both Anne's language there with superficial retelling, Adam Boxes, I, I point that this is already being mutated lethally in uh, in schools and classrooms. And um there's something else I can almost like tie together I think what I was speaking to you about last time Craig with what and you've just said here about how um you know I do think there is a a limit in terms of what we can learn from cognitive science and even cognitive load theory about how to teach and I I think it's important we recognize that because those if we don't think that if we don't if we're not aware of that then um people who think it's going to be the silver bullet that slays the werewolf of bad teaching. Nice. (laughs) Try to carry forth the the metaphor accurately. It's not going to be it's I think it's a helpful piece of the puzzle, but I don't think it's the, the be all and end all. So with cognitive, first of all, you've got cognitive science, and it's, it's theoretical frameworks. And those are just ideas about how human cognition takes place the 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 internal trying to peer into the internal mechanism of what we're calling the mind, it's barely even the brain. That's more newer science. We're, we're looking at human mind, human cognition. Then you've got cognitive load theory, which is a subset of this area, which I mean, actually the language they use is not we're trying to tell you how to teach, but trying to use these uh, theories of uh, cognitive science to derive instructional recommendations. And I think you know many of those are, p- are probably reasonable. Um, the majority of the time, it is probably good to integrate your explanations with your diagrams. Rather than you can imagine if you're even if you're a novice or you've got very little prior knowledge of car engines or, or something and you're trying to read the passage, look at the diagram, look at the key at the bottom of the page, your attention has been dragged between three different spatial locations and you're having to do more cognitive work to integrate them yourself and, and work in memory. Um, and either maybe you'll be successful and this is where things get complicated because you've had to do more work, you'll find that you can retain that for long with the future. Or maybe it'll be overloading and you'll just completely fail to get anything. And, you know, we don't have hard lines on where those things are. They're just useful models for teachers to be aware of, I think, and to make use of. Um, and I, I also agree with, with your points, Anne, about, you know, again, people having done a little bit of reading or learning about it and then using it almost to... To bludgeon and bully from a from a position of seniority to, to lay claim to maybe more expertise than one should, particularly when you're talking cross-subjects. That how to teach each subject is so you, almost unique to each subject. Um, so there was a lot that needs to be uh, taken care of there as well. Um let's see was there anything else in particular to pull out?
0: You like these dramatic pauses, Chris. You can keep the audience on the toes. I like
2: that. I thought maybe you'd edit out the pause, but um, (laughs) I think, yeah, I think um, I I also do agree actually with the, yeah, final two thoughts I had had in mind. I do agree also with the idea that often when you read this stuff, there is just a lot of, oh, aha moments. And um, we might've talked before about how working with my mentor, Penny, she had about 15 years teaching experience at the time and I started doing this this reading and started um, suggesting that maybe we do things like not teach area and perimeter at the same time because um, they're minimally different concepts and students are Mm -hmm. conflating them, teach them separately, and then draw the connections between them at a later point. Interestingly, Penny, at at almost the same moment in time, just coincidentally, was wondering about whether we should restructure our curriculum in that way just because in her 15 years of experience she constantly saw kids confusing the two and trying to calculate areas using the simpler process of let's just add up the numbers I've been given um or and count yes, the squares around the outside sorry to yes. but... yeah count the squares <laughs> around the outside so um so yeah, there was some, you know, there, there was a very experienced teacher who was absolutely deriving the same conclusions, and for me that was reassuring because it's, it's like, okay, somebody with much more experience than I have is coming to the same conclusions. But actually for her it was reassuring to hear me talk about these things because she felt like it was just her own arm wavy ideas, but to say that there was a research base behind it um, was reassuring for her. Um, but the thing I've said, I do think it's also particularly helpful for is, it, it, I think it stands as um make a bit of a guard against teaching practices which maybe aren't helpful. And um, some of this is earlier ideas around discovery and the idea that if you discover it, then um, you will learn it better or or remember it better in some way. Maybe being cautious around what we're doing with problem solving and investigative activities. And maybe, and you and I are at different places on this right now, I don't think we're ever going to be able to unpick that in even a three hour call. but you know, it would be really interesting to sort of dive into more. I'm definitely much more guarded and think, are these activities going to be overloading? And is and, and not just when I was thinking about the primary school example you gave, the thing that the alarm bell that goes off in my head, this kind of like defensive alarm bell is, was that definitely the case for every single student in that classroom? Uh, and if it wasn't, what's the ratio? Do those stories of student success, are they based on... Um, on bigging up two or three kids who got on really well in that environment, or are they based on bigging up 20 or 25 of the kids who got on really mm-hmm. well in that environment? It's just a few who were left behind. What, But even then, what are we doing with the ones who are left behind? So um, you know, I am definitely coming at everything from a slightly different direction, uh, you know, guaranteed success for, for all, however we define success in that first instance. And yeah, for me, cognitive, science, cognitive load theory definitely offers some helpful instructional recommendations that one can refer to. Paired examples, worked examples, um, the, the guidance fading, um, completion problems, all these things. It doesn't really tell you how to teach a given topic on Monday. I think you get a lot more about that helpfully from Engelmann. Um, but it also, I think uh, cognitive theory offers a lot of, and maybe just cognitive science, more broadly offers maybe a, a defensive line to what I've personally viewed as some bad practices in the past that have been overwhelming. Or even the idea that everything should be taught through projects, where projects tend to be very um, informationally noisy environments, and there isn't enough in place to help students make to, to, to pick apart everything within the noise. And um, we assume that they can do far more, far more than they're able to do. And I feel like I've been guilty of that as well. I've set up projects like that. And at the end, it's you know, just a sense of I don't know what I was supposed to be learning. Um, so that's the other sort of helpful thing and more than anything i think the helpful thing for me in cognitive science has been actually yeah, developing this uh, defensive sensitivity to certain practices that people might uh, might advocate for that certainly sound fantastic and i'd love that they worked but it seems that they don't work in my experience the experience of others they don't you'd predict that they wouldn't work if you ran it through the lens of cognitive science i think that's an interesting thing about Engelmann. you when his ideas through that filter and even though they're developed independently it seems to um survive the test they seem to work together uh so yeah I would, I would go with that it's not really a that one's not really a quick win. if you want a quick win retrieval practice but it sounds like people are doing that wrong these days so i don't know
0: fantastic well and over to you um any any thoughts on chris's response or just thoughts on cognitive science in general to build on what you said before
1: well yes um uh, yeah one of them is um, my, my personal jury is out about retrieval practice because I'm much more interested in remembering frequently <laughs> which which maths, a properly constructed math scheme of work would give you for free without the need for a new phrase that becomes something you have to do instead of the way that you structure the learning of mathematics um, The um, learning, yeah, I've got lots of disconnected things. Um, Recognition, I think we're using in different ways. To me, recognition is about seeing some mathematical idea or concept lurking in an unfamiliar place, in an unexpected place which has the fact that you can do that has to be learned, but not in a kind of formal teaching way, but in lots of experiences. Is there anything here that you recognize? What if we looked at this bit? What if we look at this bit? I mean, a lot of geometrical reasoning is about that, but so are several other things as well. So to me, recognition is a word that's so important that it's worth preserving for recognising something familiar in an unfamiliar form. Um, the, The question about did everybody get ratio, it's really important. Of course, it's an important question to ask. But the lovely thing about meeting a situation in which you lead ratio in year two, when you're not going to deal with it formally until year four, is that we have episodic memory. And so long as there's something, so long as there's a then what, which names the thing and which talks about it, so that there is there is more to the episodic memory than just being out in the playground doing whatever you were doing, there's, that there's then an episode that can be referred back to. Do you remember when? And do you remember what we did? And this is what we did. And this is what Beth did. And this is what Solomon did. And, you know, those, those things. And, and that there's something then to bring together in which every child can have some kind of um, emotional investment. And the idea that learning things is easier if you've already had some input into it, part back to something I said three hours ago, which is about the emotional, the emotional investment in the endeavour of doing mathematics with your peers and with your teacher. But if you've already had a bit of a go at it, then there's you've got something personal to connect it with. I think I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: Fascinated stuff, Anne. Right, okay, so to bring it to an end, one final question for you both, and I'm coming back to you, Anne, on this one. Um, what's an example of something important that you've
1: changed your mind about? Oh, i got to get my piece of paper out because I have I had trouble with this because it's a bit like the question about understanding, that if you're not constantly learning, um, what, what are you doing in education? What are you doing as a human being? and um and i don't know there probably are things i've changed my mind about um um, but i don't know what they are because it's a continuous a continuous process um i came into teaching at a time when people were saying do children need to learn their multiple to learn their tables put it like that do children have to learn their tables um, and because I was very new to teaching, I thought, oh, OK, maybe they don't have to. And and also, I think I've talked to you before about my first lesson trying to be about fractions and the advisory teacher saying, why do we even learn fractions? And so I sort of set, accepted those as the norms of the time. I, I have no idea what my mind was. But certainly, you know, I know that knowing multiplication facts, not necessarily writing tables is pretty important and there's lots of important things about fractions so it's a combination of my own thinking in relation to the zeitgeist of the times, and um constantly learning so there isn't one thing i have not changed my mind at all about the fact that all children are entitled to learn mathematics as much as they possibly can and need to do so.
0: Fantastic, thank you, Anne. Um, Same question to you, Chris. What's an example of something important you've changed your mind about?
2: Um, I'm going to cheat and first of all, go back and just speak to a couple of the things that you said, Anne, um, at the end before this one, because I thought they were actually quite important uh one on retrieval practice the idea that you know it doesn't need to be a a new thing that you do you know i agree with that and i actually think that the idea that it it's maybe been seen as a thing that i do is um perhaps part of the the lethal mutation that adam box is pointing to Uh, in my mind it is just making sure that you are being asked you're being asked questions and you're doing thinking and you're retrieving things from memory and that can take many different forms um including, as you said, via a very well-structured scheme of work. Also, the way that we're using the word recognition is really interesting. Um, I think we agree on everything apart from the semantics there. Um, I've chosen to refer to it, I guess, in the context of um, when you're revising for an exam and people go through their notes and they start highlighting their notes and it feels good and you feel, you know, I've been through this personally and it feels like you get it. And then you get to the exam and you can't remember anything and you're stressed and frustrated. And why is that? It's because in that instance, you were just recognizing it's a thing I learned before. But you couldn't actually retrieve it or recall it. Um, I would probably use the word noticing to describe how you described recognition. But regardless of the words we use, I, um, I absolutely accept that as being an important thing. Um, I could offer a differing or contentious point on episodic memory, but instead, because I'm cheating, I'll leave it to Craig to decide if he wants to explore that. I'll go into my...
0: (laughs) You can't leave that dangling, Chris.
2: You you want me to answer that? Oh, just you. Oh,
0: yeah, of course. The the listeners will be going crazy here. Yeah, go for it.
2: Well, I I think I agree in principle, but I'm not convinced in practice for a few reasons. Uh, One is the risk... It's very hard to create episodic memories, I think, in anybody, but perhaps especially in, in very young children. I don't know whether that's true. I'm, it's a pure conjecture. That, that for every single situation, you, can't, you can create one or two. And everyone has one or two or three memories from when they did maths or something at school. But nobody has a memory, a clear episodic memory of every time they learn every concept for the first time. And so there's a point at which you might over rely on that, I think. I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying we should do there, Anne, but I think it could be used, but it's, it's highly limited in how we can use it, and to, to the point where I, I personally wouldn't, I almost wouldn't bother, I almost wouldn't try, the exception being if I knew I was going to be teaching the same group of kids about something similarly in the future, and I guess here you gave the example of learning this for the first time in primary in year two, and then come back to talk about it formally in year four and having that episodic memory to rely on. But I don't imagine they will, because they will have had a different teacher at that point who won't be aware of that episode, unless it was something. Maybe they had the same teacher every year. Maybe that would be a different in that setting. But again, very hard to get that just structurally within the school system, I think. Um, so I, I agree, kind of in principle, it could be done. But I think in practice, it's going to be, it's gonna be it's so rare that it so rare that it could be done in reality that I almost even wouldn't worry about it or focus on it. Um, should I pause there, Craig, for a response, or do you want me to go on to questions?
0: Yeah, that? well, I'll tell you what I'll ask you to do, Chris, if it's all right, If you give me the example of something important you've changed your mind about, then I'll throw back to Anne for the final words, if that's okay.
2: Okay. So, I mean, I think I maybe have a few, but if I stick to one, and maybe the one most relevant to maths, um, yeah, I'm thinking again about my very, very, very first lesson which is actually day two, because my very first lesson was all about these are the rules, which I'm totally making up. I don't know what the rules are. I've never done this before. But by my second lesson, day two, I was asked to teach sequences. And I I remember consciously thinking in my head, I'm going to make a worksheet because I've got no materials. I just have to make everything up. I don't actually know what they need to know. So I'm going to make up what I think they need to know in various stages of uh, what you can do. With sequences. And then I'm going to look at the simplest case of this, which might be, maybe it's create the nth term rule for a simple linear ascending sequence. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through one example on the board. I'm going to do one example only, and then I'm going to make every single question, even on the easiest part of the worksheet, nothing like the example I just gave you. And what I was thinking in my head at that time, it reminded me, and when you talked about programming the computer you you have you have to do something otherwise you're just programming a computer and that's been done and you can do but is that really mathematical learning um that's kind of what i was thinking in my head i have to do it this way otherwise it's like a it's like training training a monkey to be able to repeat back what you could what you showed them that's not real learning that's not real mathematical understanding and that's what i really care about and of course the outcome was just nobody understood anything They couldn't answer a single question. And everybody hated me. So the big shift in my thinking now where if we think about the factorizing example, I'm now pulling it all down to I'm now very comfortable going in with something that is very, very, very superficial as a starting point. So that um, no matter the student, they can do this thing. But it might be as few as just a few. First of all, the sequence of questions I'd ask would, again, on the surface, complexify very quickly. So maybe it's take seven as a factor, take 215 as a factor, take 215x out of the factor, take xy squared out as a factor. So again, on the surface, it looks very complicated very quickly, so there's a feeling of confidence and success. But obviously, in reality, what you're doing is doesn't change. It's very simple. But you only do that a few times. It's, it's those four or five questions, and then and they've taken you under a minute. And now you're on to what's the next level of, of cognitive thinking I can ask. And, When you get into what Engelman calls, um, um, gosh, what does he call them now? How has that scared my mind? Because I've got too many words in my head that begin with a G. And it's not even a G, it's an expansion sequence. We get into what he calls an expansion sequence. You're now thinking about, really, each new question is asking students to think with what they already know in a new way. So you're getting into generative activity now, uh, albeit kept quite close to where you were before, at least in the beginning. I mean, again, like the further on you go, the bigger and more expansive the gaps can become. Um, so, but but again, where's the starting point? The starting point can be very superficial, and I would not have been at all comfortable with that in the beginning, and I think a lot of teachers out there are still very uncomfortable with that, either imposed upon themselves, as I did, or worrying about what that SLT member who pops into their classroom is going to think, or somebody who's coming in to observe or judge their, their lesson is going to think. And I know um, Naveen Rizvi has talked about this before where she's carefully designed sequences of instruction and then somebody has observed her lesson and I think at some point either admitted that they thought or almost accused the sequence she's designed of being a, a function of her laziness. You're just changing like one little thing from quite one question to another. Like you're not even like creating a, a full set of 20 questions here. That's truly just you being lazy. Like I can't remember whether it was they saw what, what happened in the classroom and then realized it wasn't laziness. And that's what they spoke to her, which seems much more socially acceptable, or whether it was um, somebody um, being much more accusatory and then her having to explain, this is the reason why I do it. This is why it works. But yeah, it's, um, that's been a big switch in my thinking. Um, And it it helped having things like Dan Willingham's idea with the discontinuum of understanding. And even what you start with can be helpful, so long as it's not the end point and you keep moving. That's what helped me derive to to get comfortable with that way of thinking.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Right. Let me hand back to Anne for uh, any final either reactions or reflections to what Chris has said and any final words.
1: No, I think I've said more than I probably thought I knew to start with, because it's so stimulating to have these discussions with people, particularly when there's a slightly different, um, coming from a slightly different direction. I mean, the thing about um, expansion sequences seems to me to be very similar to what in the um, uh, Bianchi is the, is what happens after you've, developed a new idea or a new process or something, and then you begin to see it in different places and be offered different transformations of it and that sort of thing. Um, I think that um, those those sort of senses of what what is it that the learner is going to... What is the information that the learner is getting from this? And what sense are they likely to make of it um has probably gone all the way through these three hours or whatever it is that we've been talking that's that's the end yeah
0: <laughs> fantastic fantastic
1: well we have done
0: three hours plus um i'm seeing this more as a pilot for a primetime tv show i'm seeing bolton and Watson head-to-head maybe channel four something like that the big debate but this has been absolutely fantastic I, it's been a privilege just just to listen to you and uh, just just to ask the questions and I'm sure listeners will feel the same so uh, Chris Bolton and I'm Watson thanks so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure thank
2: you likewise thank you pleasure so much you
1: both. Too. thank you
0: So, there you have it. There was my conversation with both Anne Watson and Chris Bolton. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Did you do that all in one go or did you break that up? Because that was an epic. And I'll tell you what, by the end of it, I was cognitively knackered, I think it's fair to say. And that's a technical term, you can use that if you like. we had a little refreshment break in the middle and we had a few kind of technical hitches that kind of disrupted the flow a little bit. But it was pretty much not far off three and a half hours straight of me essentially trying to keep up. And as I said at the beginning, I made a decision probably about a week before the podcast, that by far the best thing I could do is just to keep out the way. Ask my questions, try and keep the conversation on track, but just let those two talk. Um, And that's, again, that's what I enjoy about interviewing. It's not about me, flipping heck. You You don't tune into these to listen to me, it's to listen to the guests. And whenever you're lucky enough to have those two on the show, yeah, the, the worst thing you can do as a host is keep butting in. So, uh, yeah, I hope people enjoyed that one. And um, I think it's going to be one of those conversations that I need to return to. There's been a few of those over the years on the podcast that um, I've kind of listened at the time and thought, yeah, I take that, that and that away from it. But then I revisit it six months, 12 months later, perhaps when I'm pondering something else or perhaps I just pick one at random and I get something new out of it. And it reminded me, you know, uh, when Anne was um, on, or a couple of years ago now on the show with with John Mason, um, I asked Anne at the end of the show, um, what does she wish she knew when she first started teaching or first started in education that she knows now? And Anne's response, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit here, is that nothing, there's nothing that she wished she knew when she first started that she knows now because it wouldn't mean the same to her when she first started out. Um, and, and Anne spoke about at the time in the podcast that it's not just as simple as saying you learn from your experiences, but but something that you say, say you know your future self uh, came to speak to your you know 21 year old self and said this is important, this is important, this is important. It doesn't have the same impact as as you realizing that you know 20, 30, however many years later. And I often think think that's the same with with reading books or specifically here with 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 podcasts. So revisiting them a year later when I'm a different person, when I've had different experiences, I take different things out of them. And I'm just so grateful to have had both Chris and Anne's wisdom kind of on record that I can keep diving back into. And I hope listeners, you you feel the same as well to an extent. So uh, one of my takeaways, I'm not going to take up too much of your time here because we we could be pushing four hours here, which I think that's a bit too much for anybody. So just very briefly from me. Um, I think it's important to say, and I I, I say this about all my guests, we've had guests on the show over the last five years who have had very different views um, on education, far more different than than any gap that there would would be between Chris and Anne. Uh, We've had Andrew Blair on the show, um, Helen Williams on the show, guests for whom it's... It's been challenging in a really positive way for me to talk to because, just, oh, Helen Hindle would be another one that is speaking about mixed attainment. Just people whose views are different to mine, but have so, so many so many valid and good reasons for them. And what it always comes down to for me is this, every single person who's involved in education, so uh, certainly the ones that I've met over the years, have exactly the same aim. And that's to help students learn and be successful. Now, we may all have different views on how you get there, but that's the overriding game. And I think if you go into any conversation with somebody with that running through your head, that, look, we've got different views on how we get there, but we all want to get to the same place, I think it can lead to a much more positive conversation. And I'm recording this in April 2021, and I don't know if you've been on Twitter, but Twitter's got a bit nasty recently. People having pops at each other left, right and centre. And again, I just... I always think that, look, we all want the same thing, we've just got different views, but let's see if we can find a bit of common ground. And, and that's what I want to reflect on in this takeaway, that actually, for me, I was surprised by how many similarities there were between both what Anne and Chris were saying. Um, and for me, they were the more, more interesting things than, than the differences. So I wanna focus on four of those similarities and then just pick up on one key difference, if that's okay. So one thing I thought was interesting was um, what Chris would call atomization. Now, myself and Chris may have different kind of views on uh, or definitions or understanding of what atomization is, but I always like to think of it as, as, as thinking before I teach something, what are the things that if my students either don't understand or can't do this are really going to mess them up or reduce the chance of them understanding this new idea? that that we're gonna be doing in lessons. Now, it's not as simple for me as just prerequisite knowledge. I think prerequisite knowledge is a key part of it, but also things like what are are some of the technical language that kids will need to be familiar with? What are some of the decisions that they're gonna need to to, to be making and so on? So I I undergo this process of atomization where I list all these these atoms, um, and then I think how to deal with them, and then we do the new idea. Now, that for me would be a very kind of direct, explicit instruction thing to do. But when Anne was speaking about how she doesn't like the terms novice and expert because nobody in maths is a novice or shouldn't be because they all bring this, you know, previous experience and previous knowledge to the new idea because everything in maths connects and builds upon something else. I thought to myself, well, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Atomization is there to stop kids being true novices. Atomization is there to kind of give every everyone a solid foundation upon which to build these new ideas, and just as Chris would never go into teaching something by just assuming kids were familiar with all the building blocks, neither would Anne. So I think there's an interesting similarity there that I hadn't really seen coming. This, this notion that that this and 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 how Anne and Chris may go about, you know, checking those atoms for want of a better phrase are secure, maybe maybe completely different, but that that framing atomization in the terms of, you know, ensuring that students are not novices, I think could be potentially quite useful for me anyway. So that's number one. And number two is I really enjoy this link between variation theory and and Engelman's work. And just to put it really simply, that variation and sameness are one of the key components to learning. You you learn things by appreciating similarities and differences. And that's what I remember. It was the first ever maths conference, Mark McCourt's LaSalle uh, maths conference in Kettering. God knows what year. We're probably talking 2014, something like that, maybe even before then. And that's when I first saw Bruno Reddy uh, talk about minimally different examples for expanding quadratics. And I thought he'd lost his mind. He was doing like X plus three multiplied by X plus two. Then the next example was like X plus two multiplied by X plus three. And I was like, is there a mistake on this worksheet or what? But Bruno's point was that by only, you know, changing one thing, in that case, the order, we draw students' attention to what's changed and the impact it has on learning. So that's, that's very much, um, again, I, I saw that as kind of, all right, that's kind of direct instruction, that's practice, that's fluency. But then again, I have a very limited understanding of variation theory, but my, my, my reading of it is that that's obviously a key element to that, that actually drawing students' attention to what has changed and the impact that it has or doesn't have on the answer is really important to help students start to draw connections, as opposed to, as Chris articulated, thinking that the best form of practice is just this disconnected practice. Sure, that's got a role, but these connections, the relationships between questions and examples, are also important. So I thought that was an interesting, again, you know, connection, common ground between Anne and Chris's views and approaches. I also like towards the end that that that, no, that notion of recognizing and noticing that. Chris made the point um, initially that, that there's this almost kind of, what I call it this kind of illusion of knowing, illusion of recognizing, where you see something, you think, oh, yeah, I know that. I know how to add fractions because you're looking at, you know, a worked example of adding fractions. But it's only when you actually do it in the cold light of day with no support that you actually know whether you've done it or not. And then Anne described this, this idea of noticing that you... You notice, or oh, sorry, and and um, interpretation of recognizing or the meaning she attaches to it um, was more along the lines of you're doing a problem and you recognize that Pythagoras is going to be needed to, to, to solve that problem, or you recognize you're going to need the nth term of a linear sequence. So, and then Chris rebranded that. He said, no, he he thinks of that as noticing. So the the problem where we often have this that this often comes up on twitter we we don't really have shared meanings for many of the key terms so chris and ann had different views on on what recognizing meant as a term and it's only whenever chris said oh i see that as noticing that common ground was found and i wonder how many of the kind of disagreements we have are, are because we don't have the shared meaning of, of key vocabulary douglamov talks about this how it's really important both in cpd training for teachers but also you know teacher and student relationships to make sure that when we're talking about something, we actually are talking about the same thing, and that's why in Teach Like a Champion 2.0, Doug attaches names to these techniques like Cold Call, um, and like Slant and so on, so everybody's talking about the same thing, so I thought that was interesting. And finally, the other similarity, this surprised me, was that an appreciation that cognitive science isn't everything. Now, perhaps, I mean, it didn't surprise me so much from Anne, because, again, I've read a lot of Anne's work, and I, I found her work on cognitive load theory particularly illuminating. And if you can get hold of that article for ATM by Ohao Chen, Mike Ollerton, and Ann Watson about cognitive load theory, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And So it didn't surprise me from Anne, but then perhaps it shouldn't have surprised me from Chris, because, of course, last time Chris was on the show, he was chatting about how cognitive science isn't everything and how it can, you know, provide potential suggestions, but it certainly can't tell you how to teach... Uh, linear sequences to a year 8 class on a Monday so I thought that was interesting and um, but again it didn't surprise me that there were differences in, pat- in particular in their viewpoint on cognitive load theory and its usefulness and, and so on and so forth and if I was to boil it down to what is the key difference between Anne and Chris's viewpoints I mean there's probably philosophical differences in there and so on but if I was just to pick one out I think it's as simple as the order that things are done I mean, both both Anne and Chris want students to, to be able to learn and be successful. I think they both want them to be able to do some of the wonderful tasks, activities that are out there and some of the wonderful ones that, that Chris and Anne described um, in the conversation. But it's the route to get there. And I think that was apparent right from the start where Chris was saying when we we're talking about Pythagoras and talking about some of the activities that Anne was uh, describing, the the notion, I particularly like that one of... Um, if you look at the three sides of a triangle and you measure the distance of the longest side, it's greater than the sums of the squares of the smaller sides for obtuse angles, smaller for acute angled triangles, and then that special case of that right angle triangle where it's the same. And Chris said he loved that idea, but he'd just do it a bit later. So I think that's what it comes down to a lot of the time. It's it's. Every we've all got the same goal, both in terms of wanting students to learn and be successful, and also the same goal in terms of the kind of problems and tasks we want them to experience, enjoy, thrive upon, and so on. But it just comes down to this idea of of when's the best time to give it to those students. Is it early on in their path towards understanding something, and it's those tasks that will help generate that understanding? Or is it actually we do some fluency, we do some explicit instruction early on to get kids into position where they can perhaps be a bit more successful? And again, I'll I'll put my cards on the table here. Um, I'm probably more of that latter viewpoint, certainly these days, that I think um, there's a a lot more kind of explicit instruction in the early stages um, of a student's journey towards hopefully understanding um, a, a given concept. And I hopefully make use of carefully well thought out worked examples, non-examples and so on and so forth. But the ultimate aim's the same. And yeah, I think that's what it boils down to. I think it's a question of order. But again, listeners, uh, (laughs) that's me trying to make sense of something that... Again, he's, he's still relatively new to me. I'm three and a half hours uh, into uh, of that conversation, and I'm recording this later on in the day after a walk where I've tried to kind of bring everything together. But again, you've probably picked up on, on far more interesting similarities and differences. And I'm sure Chris and Anne will be interested in, in knowing about those. If you want to share those on Twitter, uh, copying Chris and Anne or just uh, just t- tweet them to me and I can share them around and so on. Uh, that'd be great. Anyway, whew, I think we all need a rest after that. So all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. A massive thank you for to Chris and Anne for giving up their time and being such wonderful guests. It's, honestly, it was a real privilege to have them on the show and, and listen to them. I've been looking forward to it for ages. I'm dead excited to get out of bed this morning and, and do this chat. Um, and a massive thank you to you, my lovely dear listener. Many of you've been with me for five years now. We've done God knows how many episodes and how many hours of, of of this that you've had to listen to. Fortunately, as I say, it's my guests that do most of the talking. But thank you for sticking with it with us. I got some cracking guests already. Uh, already got a really interesting one in the can with uh, Christian Bokov that we I actually did before this conversation, but I wanted to get this one out. Uh, sooner rather than later so we've got christine coming up and then of course it's colin foster and his Lumen team for season two of research and action and i've not recorded them yet but i've seen seen the bios of some of the people coming on that uh, on those episodes flipping heck one i'm excited and two i am panicking a bit because once again i'm going to be intellectually out of my depth but fingers crossed i'll muddle through anyway shut up right you're saying i know i know i know you take care bye for now